podcast this week. Actors, actual actors. The tyranny of directors is over and actors have returned. We say the odds are ever in your favour to Rachel Segler and Tom Blythe, stars of The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. We chat about all things MCU. That's the Marty Scorsese Cinematic Universe with Killers of the Flower Moon star Lily Gladstone. And we give you guys a little sneaky peek at our Loki Season 2 spoiler special breakdown with Loki himself, Tom Hiddleston. Oh, actors. Good ones. All that and more <laughs> on the movie podcast. Now, speaking of actors, just walked past, no, no word of a lie, Reese Evans in Whoa. the street. Whoa. Yeah. And just minutes before that, Alex Jones from The One Show. Not the terrible Alex Jones, but the good Alex the Jones. The good Alex Jones. In the one show. <laughs> so there must be some sort of Welsh convention on or something like that. I don't know why they haven't bloody invited me. Yes, I guess not. It's not St. St. David's Day, so it's confusing. Is it not? No. Is that April? Sure. May. Uh, you know these one things. Of those, one of those months. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, we're in the studio. We were in Leeds last week for a, a victorious and triumphant live show. Uh, with Gareth Evans, speaking of Welsh people. Oh my God, they're as, everywhere. As are, they, are, they are everywhere. Are you Welsh, Helen O'Hara, geek queen and colleague of such lethal cunning? No, I'm horse. Um, You're today. a horse? You're Norse. I'm, no, not Bad horse. N- n- Bad I horse. Hope not. I Bad mean, horse. How Norse are you? Can Chris Hemsworth lift you? <laughs> I would like to hope so, otherwise I really need Is, to. Can Chris Evans lift you? Or are chocolates. we delving into the realms of slash Again, fiction here? We're back, we're back to the restraining order, you know it. Um, no, I've been in Northern Ireland this week. I've been working with Interfilm, teaching would-be film journalists um, and trying very hard to say, no, don't do it, save Run yourself. away, run far away, it's run all the way to the FBI. <laughs> and I have, I have somewhat lost my voice um, as a result, but uh, it was really good fun. You know, I'll be honest, these young people, they were worryingly competent. I mean, I obviously did my best to ch- teach them everything wrong so they wouldn't be a threat to us, but... Uh, you know, yes. they, they weren't terrible. You played him an episode of the Empire Podcast and said, do everything that, that this guy does. Yeah, that's what I did, yeah. <laughs> that's so it. that should be that threat seen off <laughs> for another few years. I am nothing if not incompetent. I'm, I'm saying as I'm, I'm fiddling with a... If you see me fiddling on the desk, Helen, nothing untoward is going on. Hmm. I'm I mean, just that, trying to... the first time for everything. Yeah, I'm trying to make my headphones work. They're not working. They are not working. But that's fine. It means I can't hear James Dyer. Hello, James Dyer. How are you? Hello, Chris Hewitt. I am fine. Well, this was scintillating. (laughs) Oh, they fixed him again. Thank God. Just in time for the good stuff. Uh, Jimbo, I want to say thank you. For coming. Uh, For for gracing you with my presence. Oh, hang on. What have I been touching on the desk? Oh, no. (laughs) Come on now. Oh, God. Yes. So, uh, Jimbo, I have a bone to pick with you, but it's a good bone. It is a good bone. Not Again, we're not not a sex bone. Worryingly sex bone. But uh, Jimbo gave me a present, a lovely present. He thrust it into my hands just before we started recording and bade me open it. And it was uh, an early Christmas present and it was uh, a print of Clive Tilsey, the the great football commentator's uh, notes from the Champions League final in 2005 in Istanbul which I was at Liverpool in the Champions were, League, yeah. of course, for yeah. the fifth time. And it was the greatest night of my life. Um, I'm fairly confident no family members are listening to this, so <laughs> it's good, I can say that. And uh, it was amazing. And Chimpo got me that out of the goodness of his heart, which I makes did. me wonder, what the fuck do you want? Oh, I own your immortal soul now. Was that oh, okay. made clear? Yeah, I see, yeah. I see. Helen, what did you bring me? <laughs> I'll be honest, I'm not doing Christmas presents on November whatever this is. So okay. you're just going to have to wait a bit and find <laughs> out. All right. Have we ever done Christmas presents? No. I, I no, bought you stuff. I have bought you so, stuff. I yeah. bought you stuff. You have no, bought me you stuff, have actually. Not. No, a couple of times he has bought has me he? something. 
Yeah. Hang on. It's been like a stealth like surprise. Present, Hang on. But he has a He's never bought me a present. Well, yeah, but have you have prior to this never bought him a present, so it's sort yeah. of a Hang on, out. hang on. I, this is not how Christmas works. It's the spirit, it's the spirit of giving, surely. Yes, but so it's, Chris, a time, it's a time it's of miracles. It's a time of miracles, so be of good cheer. <laughs> Again, November. We're in November, We are in guys. November. Why, if you give me a Christmas present in November, you you absolute lunatic. I'm a maverick. Not actual maverick. I've I'm done just a 180 on this present, by the way. I'm now furious about it. <laughs> but then, crucially, I now have to get Helen a present. Yes. Because mm-hmm. I've got you a present. Uh-huh. I've not got Helen a present. Uh-huh. Helen has bought me many, many wonderful presents over the years, and <laughs> yeah. I've bought her to date fuck all. I'll be honest, so, I'm you struggling. You did buy me those books that one time. Or at least the office bought them for me, but I think you were the one who actively went out and bought them. So, that's you know, you true, some I did. Oh, that's got to that's count yeah, for five or six ago, Christmases at so, once, surely. You know. you're, you're in credit still, I yeah, believe. That's right. That's the gift that keeps so. on giving. Health bills, I'm struggling to recall what you've bought me. That's harsh. No, I, I, it just means it was probably insignificant uh, emotionally and wow. financially. What, what, did you, what, did you, what did you... I don't remember what did you buy everything me? Oh, you. there we go. I, bought there you, we go. I did buy you a very nice moleskin Spider-Man notebook once. Like I mean, you know that's wasteful, collectible. Right? Yeah, it's very nice. Again, I, I never it. received one of those. She probably got it. It was free. his fortieth, like in fairness, and I always forget it was your my birthday. It was my I always 30th. forget your birthday. Because... That's not making it better. Yeah, because your birthday's right before Christmas. That is true. I can't be. So, but that's fine because you could combine my birthday and Christmas presents and get me an extra big present. Okay, but like here's Jesus, the Jesus was born on Christmas Day. Here's true. the problem with getting both of you anything: you're terrible at receiving any, you know, gesture of goodwill. True. When I have brought in <laughs> baked goods, you know, crafted by the sweat of my brow. Yeah, I mean that's, that's not how you should to do bake, it. But no, you know. well, wait. You have been wildly ungrateful. <laughs> wildly so. Like, and it doesn't matter what it is. It has been, you know, cheese biscuits. I got, I don't I like say, these. These aren't Ritz crackers. Don't lump me in with this man. I'm always grateful for baked no, goods. No, no, I you love are baked not. goods. No. The cheese biscuits. Oh, you no, cheese biscuits can get to fuck. Out, okay. Absolutely. Meanwhile, like, you know, Fudge. I mean, I would have thought everybody liked fudge. It's not like either neither of you has a sweet tooth. A I, finger of fudge nothing, is just enough. Nothing. I have firm memories, Helen, of very much enjoying your cheese when you were trying to make pancakes <laughs> and I ate all of the cheese so that you could no longer make pancakes. And that was a gift I received gratefully. Mm. Yes. Yes, this was when I was sort of delia-ing delia- it. Oh, that's, had a, my, that's a difficult that's word a to difficult make up word. on the spot and yeah. say at the same time. So I was, you know, I was basically doing a, a, a you know pancake day party and I was doing yeah. savoury and sweet pancakes yeah. and I had all my toppings laid out. You did, and James just sat there and just left ate. your cheese unattended. Yeah. That oh, was a mistake. Topics. I mean, they literally wasn't unattended. It was right to my right hand side, but you just—it was attended. It was attended yeah. by yeah. me. Uh, no, I will say, Helen, when we did our 500th podcast, Helen bought Helen me a mug t- yes. which had yes. "Sucking Diesel" on it. The great Ted Hastings quote from *Line of Duty*. Yes, and yeah. that is my special herbal tea mug that I use every time I have any kind of herbal tea, which is quite regularly. And because I've been ill recently, I've had a lot of lemon and ginger tea in it. Oh, so. Uh, I've been living on that this week. Yeah. Stop. Oh, well, I didn't float up the lagging on a bubble. I uh, No, I, I like it. Uh, you have actually brought to mind the thing I remember now Helen bought me, which was the... Uh, she had the Empire Podcast 500 episode, 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 episode. <laughs> very difficult word to make up and say on the spot. Uh, uh, in in cross stitch, embroidered, embroidered, yeah, embroidered. Again, Helen has never embroidered shit for me. I'm just saying. I'm just no, saying. This well, is true. I didn't personally embroider that. I had someone embroider it for me. Thank you, Charlotte. See, the present right. diminishes by the second. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I, of course, Clive also, did I, that. I of course also gave you both a copy of my book. 
at least twice. And How's I that have, going, guys? And I have placed it lovingly exactly. on the bookshelf. In pride of place. Mm-hmm. Yes, pride I have of place. Not cracked the spine no, because no. you don't want to because damage it. You because it would crease the spine. It. Yeah, it would crease yeah. the spine. And if I were to read it, I'd end up folding the pages and thereby sullying rereading it. I mean, in many if ways, anything, it's a collector's piece. In fact, James and I do have been talking. To value it. James and I have been talking for some time about doing a Jack Reacher podcast yeah, where we would sure. reread Jack Reacher books. The Reach Arounds. No, we can't call it Reach Arounds, but we have shelved that temporarily to do our Women versus Hollywood page by page yeah. pod. Right. And it's called uh, James and Chris versus Women versus Hollywood. <laughs> I'll be, honest, I'll be honest I fancy our chances um, but well done guys Yeah. how many pages are in this book of yours? I mean I, mean, I know I, I don't know exactly but around the three. how many did mark. your ghostwriter write? how many so... <laughs> ghostwriter wrote your book yeah. amazing ghostwriter yeah. is, is a fantastic your book is vengeance I, yeah he's, he's wonderful um, All right. yeah I sent you an e-book as well I'm just saying anyway <laughs> I've placed that iPad lovingly <laughs> In pride of on place. The book show. Yeah. On the bookshelf. Yeah. We'll get to it in James and Chris <laughs> versus Hollywood. Uh, our special guest on, on episode one is Helen O'Hara. So, <laughs> is this what you're doing I'm, it now? I'm we busy. Doing it now? I'm busy. Yeah. Uh, all right. Okay. Let's, um, let's have a question. I asked people for listener questions. I'll be honest, folks. I found your questions wanting this week. So, I have been forced to dive back into the annals of my saved pod questions to come up with this doozy and I think this is a doozy I think this is a good oh one God. I mean, this goose, comes from goose. this comes from Eamon Eamondo 1977 Eamon Ruddy on Twitter who says if you said John Candyman three times while looking into a mirror is it three or five times? five it's five times so already you're fucked yeah Beetlejuice is three Candyman is five which John Candy character would you fear the most coming for you? <laughs> Uncle Buck <laughs> Uncle Buck will fuck your shit up. 100%. The man's got a power drill and he's not afraid to use it. Genuinely. I, 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 I'm, I love I, that you went straight there. You went, isn't Uncle Buck like sweet no, and loving? No, no. He has a dark side. Just just ask his, his you know, what's his niece? niece? I think it's his niece. His niece's mm-hmm. ex-boyfriend. Bug. I have very little memory of Uncle Buck apart from the joke, the extended scene where someone's got a mole in their face or something like that or is that Austin Powers and Bill Ember? Moly, 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 moly. Fred Savage as the mole. Helen, do you remember Uncle Buck? Uh, yes, a little. Maybe All not right. quite as in detail as James does. Apparently. Yes. <laughs> um, well, when you think about John Candy, what do you think about? He was one of he was a genius. He, he was, was a he was an absolute comic genius, taken far far too soon, um, but he was absolutely incredible and made some some <laughs> feels like I feels like I don't know who John Candy is. I'm, I'm riffing <laughs> desperately to find Google him, but I do. I know who John many, Candy is. Many 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 <laughs> wonderful <laughs> films. It, it sound, that sounded so wildly impersonal. <laughs> It was just John Candy. We all know who John Candy is. He was in many, many wonderful films and so, and made, made many of us laugh. In many ways, he was the people's joker. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, dear. Um, I, I am trying to think. So you might be a little taken aback if his okay. character from Spaceballs turned up. Barf. 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 Who's half man, half dog. He's his own best friend. <laughs> I'm just saying, if a half man, half dog turned up on your doorstep... That might be somewhat alarming. In, yes, in, you know, even though Barf is, of course, lovely. Um, yes, as, as it turns out, but but you would you would be taken aback at the very least, right? Um, I I would also be very scared of his character in Home Alone. What was that, Gus? Gus? 
something? Yes, Gus. The Polka Man. The Polk, yes. Uh, oh, Lord, Gus Polinsky. The Polka Just King. Polinsky, the Polka the King. Polka King the Polka of the King. Midwest. Yes, that's King. it. Yes. That's it. I, I don't love Polka. No disrespect to anyone who does. I just, it's not for What me. is Polka? It's that oompa, 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 oompa music. Oompa, oompa, loopa doo doo. No, we've no, got a few that's... more weeks to go. Come on. Okay. Hold your fire. Mm. But I believe it's the oompa music. Yeah. What about uh, Del Griffith? Is That's it Del Griffith? Planes, trains, and automobiles. Yeah, I keep, um, he's lovely. He, though. He's got the same name as, uh, technically speaking, because you're assuming a Dell mm-hmm. in this case is short for Derek. I thought that's a very British thing. Mm-hmm. It might be short for Delbert, but if his name is Derek Griffith, then he's got pretty much the same name as my favorite presenter of um, Playdays when I was growing up. <laughs> wow, that is a. It's not even a deep cut reference. It's just. <laughs> it's just a reference that should be cut. I mean, that's, that's amazing. Cut to deeply, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so he was, uh, he was, he was Del Griffith. He was, in, yeah. That's look, his best role. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't, yeah, it's a, it's a great role, but you wouldn't be scared if he turned up on your doorstep, would you? I mean, he's a bit he overbearing, a, isn't he? He's a bit overbearing, he's a little bit of a force of chaos, but it's not his fault that everything goes wrong. And ultimately, you know, he's kind of, spoiler for Planes, Trains and Automobiles, oh, a film a that's 30-something years old. But, like, he is ultimately um, a guy who just needs a, needs a friend, needs a family. Just needs a friend. You know? Or an oh. Uber. Oh no! An Uber for trying were, to get halfway across the country. Man. Yeah, they Come would on. have. It would have been an expensive Uber. Also, Ubers didn't exist then, so <laughs> disqualification. Can you name the actor in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles who beats Steve Martin. Steve Martin to the cab? Is it? Is it? Is it? Is it Stephen Tobolowski? No, it's not. Is it Derek Griffith? Your favorite? It's not. <laughs> is Derek is Griffith child? and Johnny Ball? Is it Sandy Toxwick? <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. Is it Sandy Toxwick? It's not Sandy Toxwick. Oh. Come on, this is quite a famous scene. I don't remember. It's a Steve Martin film. I burned it from my brain oh, on account God. of oh. hating it. God. Who hates Steve? Don't even fit. Oh. Hi, have you met me? I mean. Come on, this is a famous scene. Stop Googling it. I've Googled it. For fuck's sake. I know sake. now. See, do you see that? This is what I'm up against. This kind of cheating. <gasps> like you don't do it on a this daily This is why basis. he doesn't buy you stuff. <laughs> yes. <gasps> this is it. This is the whole reason I don't get you presents. All right, Helen, who is it? It's Kevin Bacon. It is Kevin Bacon. All right, there we go. Anyone else? Anyone else? Any great, you know, summer rental? Do you like that film? Do you like... Never really what about, loved that one. He plays a really... See, this is the interesting, you know, because obviously he died really, really young. Mm, he was in did. his 40s when he died. Mm. Uh, he was a big unit, John Candy, mm. right? And JFK, mm-hmm. he's really not menacing in JFK, but he's really creepy in JFK. He's, for my, for my mm. money, one of the standout performances in that incredible ensemble. I think we, you know... We would have had a really interesting, I think, second act, John Candy's mm. career, where I think he might have segued into playing menacing types. Like Coen bosses, Brothers, bad heavies. Guys. Yeah, precisely. Mm. In the same way that kind of Vince Vaughn has, yeah. has done that of, of, of late. You use your physical John attributes. Goodman. John Goodman, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so John Candy. So you're saying your answer is Barf from Spaceballs. Yeah. And your answer, Jimbo, is Uncle Buck. Yes. Don't give a fuck. <laughs> Absolutely. Uncle Buck will fuck you up. That is the t-shirt that I would like to be wearing right now. <laughs> well, there's your Christmas present. Yay! Helen's going to get that made. Oh, hey, he's in... Um, he's in um... Oh, he was really creepy in Splash, wasn't he? I mean, wasn't everyone? Was it creepy in Splash? Wasn't he the one who was like looking up women's skirts and stuff? Wasn't he like oh, the I kind of like I mean, if she's a mermaid, I'm not sure that, that would have the result he's looking for. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> referring specifically to the mermaid, though. So. Oh, I see. Yeah. I see. 
<laughs> That's a very good point. Uh, let's see what else he was in. He was in 1941. He was in the Blues Brothers very briefly, very of briefly, course. Yeah. Uh, he was in Stripes. He was in National Lampoon's Vacation. He is the guard of Wally World when they finally he get to is. Wally World. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, he is. He is. Uh, he and John Hughes were tight, tight, tight. They were tight. Uh, he was in Brewster's Millions. Yeah, he's the really most, likeable in that, right? The most <laughs> un-Walter Hill-like movie of all time. It's one of those movies where you went, okay, here's Brewster's Millions. Richard Pryor is, you know, it's a remake, you know mm. what it is. Richard Pryor is a guy who, in order to win, there was a 300 million in the movie, has to spend, spend 30 million yeah. in 30 days. Uh, it's a lovable, warm-hearted, romantic comedy, and John Candy's in it, and it's great. Well, I remember it being great. Who directed it? And you give people like 50 guesses and I guarantee you I Walter Hill said Walter will Hill. not come up <laughs> I've all. seen the film. I still wouldn't have said Walter Hill. Oh. I've now convinced myself it wasn't Walter Hill, but it is Walter Hill. <laughs> uh, it is absolutely Walter Hill, um, which is, you know, <laughs> a stretch. Uh, Summer Rental, Volunteers, alongside Tom Hanks, of course, again. Uh, Little Shop of Horrors, Helen. I'm surprised I, you didn't mention that. I know, but he's not scary in it. Quite, I was referring to the yeah, question. It has to be so. scary. Hmm. All right, okay. Uh, the Great Outdoors. Who's Harry Crumb? Would Harry Crumb scare you if he came after you? Probably not. No? The Sheriff in Canadian Bacon, maybe. But even <laughs> yeah. that, I think, is a stretch. All right. I think it's Gus Polinsky, if I'm honest. Just because uh, the polka. He's in Nothing But Trouble, which is the uh, movie that Dan Aykroyd directed, which is famously one of the, the worst directorial debuts of all time and it was a, a massive farrago and you know read about it in Nick Assemblian's book uh, Wild and Crazy Guys which sits oh, right book. next yes. right next to Helen's with a similarly su- spine, spine similarly uncracked <laughs> because I have respect for the printed word yeah mm. same here, same I, have, here. Re- I have respect for the printed word I'm going to go for Home Alone because mm. I've never seen nothing but trouble Right, right. So I don't know what character he, he might plays be in terrifying that. in that. But let's. Assume. I know. Yeah. I I think he is actually, if memory serves. I have seen that, but I remember almost nothing about Doesn't it. Doesn't Dan Aykroyd? He's like in layers of prosthetics. Yeah, I think John Candy's yeah, in a yeah. similar. I can't remember. Who, I yeah. remember Aykroyd being scary in it, and I'm just assuming John Candy is scary in it, but I don't know. Right. Uh, but Chevy were Chase you scared because more. they were being funny? <laughs> yes, it was the comedy genuinely that, that frightened mm, me the most. Yeah. James was hiding behind the sofa with his fingers over <laughs> his eyes. What is this strange sensation yes. in my face? I don't like it! Uh, it's Christmas. It's a time uh, for miracles. So it is a time also for me reminding people uh, listening at home that Home Alone is a big pile of shit. Uh, <laughs> and therefore, uh, anyone involved with that movie, and I believe there are some funny people in a movie, uh, Catherine funny. O'Hara, no yes, relation. No relation. Daniel well, Stern, no relation. Joe Pesci, no relation. I don't understand what no relation means, but I think I'm just going to keep on saying it. And of course, John Candy is Gus Polinsky, yeah. the polka king of the Midwest. And he would be frankly terrifying because he might bring that little fucking brat Kevin McAllister with him. Yeah, you did talk about this at length on uh, uh, an episode about Humbug the other uh, year. So, um, yeah. Yeah, if you want to hear more of Chris's rant about uh, Home Alone. It's an unpopular position, I'll be, I'll be honest. Most people love that film like it is their own sibling or uh, at least an aunt. Mm. One who smells vaguely of piss. Wow. We all have a nant who smells vaguely of piss. I mean, that's rude. It's true. All right, I think we've exhausted the possibilities of that question. Gus Plinsky, terrifying. Uncle Buck, not terrifying, but I'll accept it. And Helen's answer, man-dog type thing. Mm. Yes, okay, that'll, that'll win. <laughs> if you want to have your question read out in the Avatar podcast, you can get in touch with me on Twitter still. 
Uh, I'm at Chris Hewitt. You can slide into my DMs. You can reply to a panicked shout-out every now and again. You can reply to any of my tweets once you've stopped laughing, of course. Or you can just hope that I see one of your tweets and I like it and then forget about it and then come back to it in a panic about three months later. So thank you very much indeed to Eamon for that question. Shall we have a guest? Let's. Let's have a guest. All right, so we got, we're going to save Tom Hiddleston to the very, very end. Uh, so you have either Lily Gladstone or returning champion Rachel Segler or, and Tom Blythe. Well, let's do the, you know, young, enthusiastic people first. Give us all a Young, lift. enthusiastic people. I remember them. I remember being young and enthusiastic. Uh, it was 84, it's been 84 years. <laughs> uh, Rachel Segler returning to the podcast. It's the third time she's on. Um, can't get rid of her. And the, the actor strike is over. Hooray! The actress strike, the SAG after strike is over, of course. Uh, but the Hunger Games, the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, which is Francis Lawrence's Hunger Games prequel, which takes place many, many years before the events of the Hunger Games. You remember those films with Jennifer Lawrence. Um, anyway, they had a waiver. They had a SAG after waiver to promote this, and then the strike was called off anyway. So you were like, oh, what's the point of getting that waiver? Eh? Eh? Isn't it? Anyway. Whatever happened, they were going to talk to us anyway. So, movies out this Friday. Francis Lawrence, Rachel Segler, Tom Blythe plays Donald Sutherland, which is... Coriolanus Snow, but yes, also that. What, anus? Oh, no, it's funny. They just say that, so they call him Corio in the film. <laughs> I, I would call him anus. I would call him anus as well. I would go st- straight for the anus. How about so just Cory? Cory, but then yeah. you'd probably get sued by the makers of Carnage. Oh, you would, quite rightly yeah, as well. True. Anyway, this happened last week, and we sent along our resident Hunger Games expert, Sophie Butcher, uh, to have a chat with Rachel Segler and Tom Blythe about the movie and them being in the movie and other things as well. Now, um, someone who was producing the interview fucked up <laughs> and forgot to pack a third microphone, forcing poor Sophie to record her part of the conversation on her iPhone, which is why she'll probably sound different from Rachel and from Tom. I'm trying to track down this person mm-hmm. who fucked up mm. and forgot to pack the third microphone. Yeah, what, what does he, uh, when what does I he look get like? a hold of them, yeah, yeah. it's hard to say. Mm. Various onlookers were asked to describe this person right. and they said handsome, mm-hmm. witty, debonair, oh, devilishly well, sexy, yeah. smells of piss, we're never going to find We're him. We're never going to find him. We're never going to find Who him. Who is it? Who could it be? Where could he be? Uh, anyway, here we go. Here is Sophie Butcher talking to Rachel Segler and Tom Blythe. Enjoy. Rachel Segler, Tom Blythe, welcome to the Empire Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's a delight to have you here in person really talking nice. about this film. You've obviously might not have expected that that was going to happen. Is it exciting to bring this film to the world and and get to talk to people about it. Yeah, I think we very much expected that it wasn't going to happen because of the SAG strike. So uh, it was a real surprise last Monday when we got the call that we could could come and do this. And uh, Mm. we're very grateful to be here. It's just bringing it to the fans is so important. They're the reason that this franchise has lived on as long as it has. And why Suzanne was able to bring us another story in the world of Pan Am and getting to share this with them is so special. Obviously, this is a huge franchise already. What was your guys' relationship with the original films? Were you were you fans to begin with? I was a huge fan of the original films um, and went to see them every opening weekend with my mum and my sister. It was kind of a little tradition we had. Um, hadn't hadn't read the books before, so reading this book, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, was a was a real like eye opener. I was like, oh my god, these books are amazing, mm-hmm. um, which I should have known from how good the films were. were. But uh, yeah, I was I was like 
a big fan and there's a, there's a real like nostalgia and kind of like feeling of honoring my teenage self by doing this movie. Yeah, I was also a huge fan of the franchise, went to all of the midnight screenings of the movies and also the midnight releases of the books at bookstores in the US. Um, and it was just such a nice thing to share with my, also my mom and sister, because we were all such a huge fan of, of Suzanne's writing. I'm around I'm a bit older than you guys, I think, but I really grew up with these films and mm. um, they kind of really set the tone for a huge genre in the kind of um, young adult uh, sort of world. So did it feel kind of daunting to kind of enter that or was it just exciting to be a part of it? There was a mix of both. I think it's always a little bit of pressure that you almost place upon yourself after you accept a role in, in such an incredible and important franchise to so many young people. But you kind of have to put that aside and understand that comparison is inevitable, but it's also, it doesn't serve you as a performer, as an actor. And we felt so embraced by Nina, who produced all of the original films, and Francis, who directed three out of the four original films. And that that made it a, a welcoming environment for us. Yeah, it definitely felt like joining a family that, yes, already existed, but was like eager to, to bring new family members in. Um, like, and I, I'm talking about like the creative family and also the fans of the, of the franchise who have been so welcoming, because I think mm. I definitely had a fear that joining this pre-existing world that was already such a like a big piece of of um of moviegoers kind of hearts um and history i was kind of worried that i don't know we wouldn't be embraced or that like people there was you know too high an expectation that we couldn't meet or something like that but it's been the opposite i mean everyone seems really happy to have us and um I think it's also a credit to the film that Francis has made. Um, I think it's a really special film that feels like it stands on its own two feet, kind of as a part of the universe of Pan Am, but also as its own new thing as well. Um, but yeah, I definitely felt a bit of a pressure at first to live up to Donald Sutherland's um, kind of beloved or love to hate beloved character. <laughs> um, but very quickly realized that I got the, I got the chance to make him my own um, and and kind of look at him with new eyes. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to ask more about that. And what was the book, the first starting point for you or the films like, or how much did you want to kind of incorporate what Donald had done, but but then make it, how did you find that balance between the two? Yeah, I mean, when you're making a, a film or a TV show or anything that is based on a book, you have like, I think a luxury as an actor and a kind of honor of, of like you like breathe a sigh of relief that some of that history is already made for you it's already on the mm -hmm. page so anytime i'm lost i mean it's for me it all starts and ends with the book um with anything i'm doing if, if i'm playing a historical character or if i'm playing uh, an adaptation of, of literature um it all starts with the text or the history um and i kind of mine it for what i can find and and even if you don't see it on the screen i feel like it becomes a part of the character inside um and their kind of internal life um, and yeah, anytime I'm lost, I go back to the book and, and, and rely on Suzanne Collins and her words. Cause it's all, you know, you're, you're bringing her imagination to life. Um, so it's all there if you look for it. Um, but yeah, I think, um, in terms of kind of recreating Donald's performance, I think, um, I'm, I avoid doing that because I'm playing him 64 years earlier and, and most of what happens to make him a tyrant hasn't happened yet, which is what the film is about. It, it's the beginning of that story, which is what, what's so exciting about coming in so early to, to his story, um, you get to see that unfolding in real time. Um, so I got to kind of like take a fresh look. But by the end of the film, you do start to see a bit of that older Coriolanus Snow coming in and that kind of more tyrannical version of him. I won't say why, because you got to see the film to see that. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's, it's exciting to play. 
Yeah, absolutely. And Rachel, for you, how, how big a part of um, the process did the book play for you in, in getting to know Lucy Gray as a character? Absolutely. I read the book three times. Mm. Uh, as a really big fan of Suzanne and of the franchise, when it came out in 2020, I was so excited to read it. And um, we had one copy in our house because it was during the pandemic. And so my sister had read it and turned to me and was like, Rachel, you have to play this part. And then my mom read it and she was like, oh shit, yeah, Rachel has to play this part. And then I was like, <laughs> give me that. And, and I read it and and I fell in love with her. I thought she was such a dynamic character and so multi-layered in a way that we really hadn't seen in, in the Hunger Games franchise before. Um, and so when it came to... Uh, when I was talking to Francis about maybe playing the role, I decided to read it again. And then while we were shooting, I read it again. And and like Tom said, to echo such a wonderful sentiment that you could just always go back to the text because Suzanne has thought of it. And even if you know it isn't written in the text of the book, you can ask. And uh, there were so many times where people were pinging Suzanne and asking for input and and her commentary making sure that any creative changes or creative ideas they wanted to incorporate into the film were approved by the person who created such an amazing universe. And I think that's why this franchise has always spoken to fans. Obviously, the books are amazing, but when you're translating a book to the screen, adapting anything is a really tricky thing. And it's not always very easy to get right. And so I think Francis and Nina's dedication to making sure that Suzanne's vision was there really helped me feel comfortable in the things that I brought to the table that were my own, but felt in line with what Suzanne would want for Lucy Gray. I just spoke to Francis earlier um, and he was saying that Suzanne had been working on a kind of Bible, um, like a Hunger Games Bible, like all where things originate from, where everything oh, wow. comes from. So it must have been helpful to have her there as a resource, but also to dig into all this stuff that we know plays out in the later films. So it must have been helpful for you guys to tap into that while you were shooting. Absolutely. And even to like things that, People may consider minor details, but to us are very, very important. Like um, the names on the dog tags, the yeah. full names of, because you meet a bunch of peacekeepers, Spruce, be, well, Spruce Bean is in, Spru yeah, Beanpole, yeah. Smiley. Smiley. Yeah. Spruce is not a peacekeeper, just want to make sure that's yeah, clarified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, Rachel Zegler doesn't know anything about the Hunger <laughs> she, Games. Yeah, she doesn't know who Spruce is. No, uh, but she had full names for them, whether they were described in the book, which some of them were, yeah. and then some she sent an entire biography for these mm. actors to read. And it was just incredible. Her mind is amazing. Yeah, every now and again, like one of the actors playing like Beanpole or Smiley or someone would, would be like, wait, what is my last name? Yeah. Should I make one up for my, you know, for my character history or do, no, or is, no, or, no. or is there, you are Magnus Nostrich. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And Suzanne like always has a name ready. Like she's, she's, even if it's not written down in the book, it's in her head. Yeah. And I was amazed by just like the world that lives inside her head for Pan Am is so vast there and was, so specific. Yeah. And also by the way, or I spoke to her the other day on the phone and we were talking about like Shakespeare and Roman history and all these like, huge philosophical things that she writes into it and most of the names are very very specifically nodding towards a certain person in history or a mm -hmm. certain philosopher or a certain shakespearean character so it's like really densely populated with all this like genius level stuff yeah. um which is a, just a testament to how how smart she is and and how much this franchise means to her in terms of like its wider meaning and, and the big questions she's asking yeah 100 percent. i mean rachel you talked a little bit there about it being it's hard to adapt these sort of things of for, for the screen. And I think with Snow in particular, he's such a complicated character. Um, much of the book is from his perspective. It's his internal thoughts. He's, you know, really sort of, um, 
he's hard to read at times yeah. uh, from the outside. Was that kind of daunting for you, Tom, coming into it, knowing that you have to convey all this stuff going on in his head onto the screen without that kind of luxury of being inside his head? Yeah, I think for a minute it was daunting. Um, but honestly, I think it, it's mostly exciting. I think like the reason... I like playing characters is because they're complex and, and I don't really have any interest in playing a character that isn't complex and doesn't have contradictions inside themselves. And I think the reason for that is that that's how humans are. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'm not interested in playing one, one level of, of a person or one version of a person all the way through a film or TV show. I think it's like, I don't know, you can do that in life. You know, if, if you want to like be one thing, you can be one thing, but on screen, I want to see complex, full, uh, you know, uh, like three-dimensional. multifaceted, three-dimensional, yeah. four-dimensional yeah. people. Um, because that, like, the point of what we do is to hold a mirror up to us and say, like, what is humanity? Which Suzanne is already doing with the book. So, like, to play a really complicated character on screen is just a joy, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even if some of the things they do are things that I wouldn't do, or uh, or things that I think are like reprehensible. I think that's interesting to look at and and to kind of dig into as an actor. Yeah, hundred percent. And I guess, you know, we know that he becomes the villain, he becomes the antagonist of this overall story in the later films. But I guess for you, I mean, actors, and from what I understand, you have to kind of find the humanity in someone, even if they're doing terrible things. So are you kind of thinking of him as a hero or a villain at any point? Or are you kind of letting go of those labels? I would, with any character I play, would never, ever give them the label of like hero or villain. Um, Even if like the general public or the audience sees them as a hero or a villain. Um, And that's because I think like in your life, you don't think of yourself as a hero or a villain. You know, um, even someone who does terrible things doesn't think of themselves as a villain, probably. They think they probably think they're doing the right thing even if the rest of us disagree um and that's like what is interesting about about telling stories is like getting to ask the the why you know it's like okay you think you're you're not a villain like why do you think you're not a villain when you're doing these things um and also just like on a practical level as an actor the minute you start judging your character yeah. it's really hard to to empathize with them and if you can't empathize with them then you can't really find their truth and be truthful and then the, the acting gets like flattened out yeah, absolutely. So you've got to keep that in mind the whole time. Yeah, or, look, or keep it out of mind, really. It's yeah, like, you know, yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, and Rachel, with, with Lucy Gray, I mean, some of the most sort of spine-tingling moments are your musical performances, which are just so wonderful. Thank you. Um, but it's, we, we, you know, we last saw you singing West Side Story, mm-hmm. but this is quite a very, it's a different style of a musical performance. It's more sort of folksy, yeah. it's more acoustic. Um, what kind of went into you in to preparing um, to do that for you and sort of adjusting your style. Yeah, I mean, it's honestly, and this will probably shock a lot of people, my, my favorite style of music to listen to and to sing is folk music. And so getting the opportunity to do that was exciting and and getting to speak to Francis Lawrence, our director, about, um, he's also somebody who's so passionate about music and, and guitar and uh, production. And so uh, we hired an amazing musical producer named Dave Cobb, who has worked with John Prine and Dolly Parton and amazing country artists. And he was actually on tour with a band while we were recording. So he would join in on Zoom from Nashville or wherever he was that given week uh, to listen in on our recording sessions. And he had a lot of discussions with Suzanne, who, when she wrote those lyrics, had an intention for the tone, where it would fit in Lucy's voice and uh, the tempo and everything like that. So um, I came in and and I was just kind of the last puzzle piece, really. And so I listened to a bunch of scratch recordings that Dave had recorded with incredible musicians and kind of fit myself in vocally. I also had an amazing 
guitar teacher named Ella who did not speak much English. But uh, <laughs> in the truth of music being a universal language, we found a way. Yeah. And so I was singing and, and playing guitar live on all of those takes that you see. Um, there's a few that had to be pre-recorded for the sake of it's over a montage or anything. But even those were um, they were filmed. Uh, they were recorded with a boom mic in a live set in the middle of the field so that it still fit in the tone of the film. And I loved it so much. It's such a fun opportunity to switch it up from something like West Side Story that's so operatic in musical theater, which is what people normally know me for, and get to say, actually, I know how to do this too. And I vote my my um, vocal coach, Joan Later, dubbed me a vocal chameleon. And I, I like that title. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to see you sort of experimenting and, and stuff going forward yeah. and uh, talking about getting out of your comfort zone it feels like this is the most kind of action that we've we've seen you doing yeah in the arena especially I mean was that kind of scary that must be a very intense physical process it is if I had the time to be scared I probably would have been <laughs> yeah. but it was really like I finished a film and I landed in Poland the next day and had to jump right in and everyone else had had about four or five weeks of stunt training and choreography and, and I didn't really have that but I kind of relied on the kindness of my fellow castmates, the patience of my stunt coordinators, Scott and Steve, and Dave Thompson, my A-camera operator, who truly would push me out of the way so that I didn't hit him, hit anybody <laughs> else. And what you see in the film during the bloodbath, as it's called, is a terrified Rachel that that translated well into Lucy Gray Genuinely being terrified as well. <laughs> but it was really wonderful and fun and getting to... Everything you see is... Um, I did a lot of my own stunts. I would say like... 95% of them were done by myself and I had a great stunt double Silky who did the really tough stuff and um, it, it's just it's a kind of electrifying I, I get why people really love adrenaline oh yeah I love doing stunts like, yeah. yeah I mean I'm on like a cowboy TV show in the, in, uh -huh. in the US called Billy the Kid and I do I get to like do all my own horse riding and like gun shooting and, and there are great stuntmen who help us but yeah, it's kind of a similar thing where it's like for the majority of the time I get to do all these insane horse riding stunts that yeah. I never thought I would get to do. Mm -hmm. um, but it does. We it got really to like, do a fun wire stunt together on this did. one. We did a really fun wire it stunt. It felt like on a this. trap door, like kind of lift, like let us go. Yeah. And we were holding on for dear life, but it, it, it drops sold us it down really into well. a cage in, in the Capitol Zoo. Yes. And, and, and it was like 30 foot in the air. Like, yeah. like more than we thought it was going to be. I've got right? a great picture of us hanging there. We look like the SpongeBob like meme where he's just hanging from the <laughs> ceiling. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was quite an impactful moment in watching it. I was like, that's quite a drop. Like, yeah. yeah. Hope Tom's and okay. All, those, yeah. all, those, <laughs> all of our stunt actors really did roll out. Uh -huh. yeah. we, we were just We suspended. got the luxury of a, of a rope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just to fly for a little bit. Yeah. Um, what I think is so interesting about um, Lucy Gray and um, Coriolanus' relationship is that it's kind of built on these sort of stolen moments, mm. like whether it's in the zoo, when he's coming, giving her food, mm. yeah. um, trying to communicate while she's in the arena, all that sort of thing. I mean, and there's such great chemistry between you guys. Was it tricky to kind of build that, knowing that you only had, um, like I said, these sort of stolen moments to deliver it in? That's such a good That's point. That's a really good point. Yeah, yeah, I didn't even think about it that way, truly. And it, it really is like that. And hilariously enough, we spend a good portion of the movie separated mm. in the sense that I'm in the arena and, and Tom is not. We actually met on Zoom. Yeah. 
our chemistry test was on Zoom and the chemistry was good over Zoom, which is, it's it's funny how that translates to the screen. Yeah, I'm now wondering, like for the first time, you've just made me think this, Sophie, is like, uh, I wonder if that helped because a lot of what the relationship is is almost secretive. Yeah. Because um, yes. they're not supposed, they're like lovers who aren't supposed to be lovers, you know, like they're, they're, like, they're from def- different parts of the capital. It's very frowned upon for someone from District 12 and someone from the capital to, to like spend any time together, let mm. alone fall in love. Um, so it's, I think in a weird way, that helped us kind of bond really quickly and, and and the fact that we only met on Zoom for the first time, it's like yeah. we almost became like conspirators together, you know? Yeah. Um I don't know, yeah, there's something about That's that. That's like, a really interesting point. Yeah. Well done. And also I think <laughs> like, thanks. Yeah, yeah. No, it's nice to think about something in a different from a different yeah. angle. I I think um those are fun moments to play together. The quiet moments are really where I think viewers of films really lean in in their seats and, and want to know what's going to happen next. And yeah, well, because we're like stealing moments together as Corio yeah. and Lucy Gray, it's almost like the audience gets to steal them with us a little bit. Like yeah. they're almost co-conspirators against the capital. Yeah, yeah, the power of a whisper in film is really underrated. Yeah. And there was a lot that we had to whisper to one another. <laughs> 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 Snore sending his whispers yeah. throughout Panem. <laughs> um, I think my time's almost up, but just a, just a kind of general question to end on. What do you think it is about the Hunger Games that people are just so invested in and that they love so much? What do you what do you think it is about these stories that draws people in? I think I, I can tell you what draws me in, yeah. and always has since I was since I was a lot younger. Um, it's that they're really entertaining, big, like action packed films with these beautiful relationships and the kind of like like subversive love stories in there um but on top of that you come away having been entertained and then like forced to think about things mm. um forced to think about society and, and what it means to be fed propaganda and um and whether or not you're being misled by the people who you're supposed to trust um and all those things are like really human and really uh societal and they're big questions that Suzanne begins with when she starts writing these books um and so for me it's like for, it's like the most important thing we can do as as actors and filmmakers is tell stories that people are entertained by and not bored by and feel like they get a breath of fresh air when they go to the cinema and like sit down to eat some popcorn while still being challenged and, and made to think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, exactly what Tom said. And also that Suzanne writes real humans in front mm-hmm. of the landscape of a dystopia. Yeah. And getting to see the way that they react to things is inspiring for young audiences to call it out and see it and make change in the world. And I think that's what Suzanne wants to do by asking those questions, because the answers have the power to make change. And so does art. And so I feel like that's why this story has survived since 2008 when the first book was published. And now we're here 15 years later, like putting out the film version of her latest release in 2020. It's an amazing thing that we get to do as artists, but we really owe it all to Suzanne and and her incredible brain. And I hope that she has more stories to tell in the future. Yeah, we both hope. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. That's a lovely note to end on. Tom, Rachel, thank you guys so much for your time. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank you. That was awesome. Okay, so that was Rachel Segler and Tom Blythe. We will be reviewing Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes later on in the show, although given the amount of time it takes to say the film's name, we don't have a lot of time left. Uh, and we should use that time wisely to talk about this week's movie news. And unusually, there has been quite a lot of movie news. Martin Scorsese's doing cartwheels um, because the Marvels, mm. the 33rd movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, opened last week at the box office and in an unusual move for an MCU movie, flopped big time, big flopperoony um, by any measure really 110 million dollar opening weekend around the world 47 million dollars at the u.s box office Mm. 
we are traditionally with the MCU, $47 million is a day mm. for an opening weekend, not the whole kit and caboodle. It may well struggle to hit $200 million worldwide. It may, it probably will, but it may struggle. Mm. And it's almost certain to end up as the lowest grossing movie in the MCU. A lot of people are now writing, if not obituaries, because mm. as, as we said last week, the MCU is going to be around uh, for a long, long time. And of course, this opened on the same day that they dropped the final episode of Loki Season 2, which for my money is one of the best things the company has ever done. I don't but agree with that, but... I, I, I love it. I, mm. think it's, I think it's fucking brilliant. It's good. Um, but I think rumours of their demise are greatly exaggerated. Um, but you can see why people are... Are going? Ooh, there's a bit the of blood and water here. Yeah. Mm. I'm not. I mean, I'm the box. The degree to which it has not succeeded at the box office maybe surprises me. I'm not surprised that it is less successful than the others at all. Uh, not because it's a bad film, but because there is. It has so much baggage. So it's a sequel to a film that a lot of people didn't like. It has the weight of the kind of incel crowd's misogyny on top of it as well. It's you know a triple threat with two characters who who were introduced by TV shows that a lot of people don't watch. So it, it's it's got an uphill struggle from the get go. Uh, and obviously, talk of reshoots and you know confused storytelling and bad test screenings also dogging this film. So lots of problems. I think the thing that I really object to is the gleefulness of the pylon. Yeah. The the editorialising around this has been so sadistic. The schadenfreude, you could just feel it. They're just, everyone wants a piece of it. Oh, look how terrible it's done. MCU is dead. <laughs> you know, and it's just like, all right, calm down. Like, first of all, it's, un, you know, it's unfounded and it's unnecessary because actually it's a perfectly fun film. I had a giggle with it. It's really enjoyable. Um, that said, all of that done, like we talked a couple of weeks ago about what people could do, like what we would do with our magic wands to fix the MCU, to which point my thing was, after Endgame, I would have stopped, waited a year, and then come back with the X-Men. I think the fact that, obviously, as things have moved next year, and as there is, at the moment, one MCU movie next year, which is Deadpool 3, mm. I think that is maybe what this needs. I think we need a complete palate cleanser, which is... I mean, let's be honest, it's almost like no MCU movies because Deadpool doesn't almost really feel like the same thing anyway. Well, as far as we so know. So far as we know. Yeah. And I think it will feel totally very, very different. Yeah. So business as usual MCU, there will be none on the big screen next year, uh, which I think is a really good thing because it will make people stop and pause and maybe remember why they love these films and look forward to them as events again. And it's just a question of, I can't off the top of my head remember what MCU TV stuff is next year. Uh, do you know off the top of your Echo, head? Echo, I guess, early in the year, Thunderbolts Echo, Echo. at the very end. Of oh, the Thunderbolts year? is a film. That's a film. Uh, yeah. that's, that's due out. That's not uh, going to. That's going to be 2025, 2025 yeah. along with Captain America: Brave New World. Yeah. Um, and in terms of in terms of TV shows, Daredevil: Born Again might happen next yeah. year. Uh, and then we have Echo and Ironheart and Agatha: The Dark Hole Diaries if yeah. they come out next if year. Come on, yeah. yeah. I mean, part of me hopes they don't because mm. I almost think it would really do the MCU good to just pause, to take a beat, and to let people miss it. As someone has uh, pointed out, and I, I like I say, I, I'm very much with you. I don't agree with a lot of this ding dong, which is dead stuff. Uh, I think it is a really good film. I think it will. Over time, these films don't, I think, actually make a loss because there are so many different revenue streams that they come from um, that it will be fine. Like you know, they 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 act like it. Do, if it doesn't make a, a profit within like three three months, it's made a loss, and that's not necessarily true over time. Well, yeah, well, creative Hollywood accounting, creative Hollywood accounting, of course, <laughs> yeah, is, but... is a factor. But um, so look, I'm I'm not kind of worried for it. It is a fun film. It, I think it's a good film. I thought some of the the reviews were wildly overblown, um, but each to their own. 
But the point is, like, that's not the whole MCU. And the fact that th- there are some worries here, I think there is a sense that it's gotten too much like homework. I think if you look at the post-credit st- or mid-credit stings of the last few years post-Endgame, a lot of them have set up stuff that still hasn't been delivered. And I think there's a sense of like where like all of these things yep. are all of these plates up in the air. And like there's, some of them I just don't care about. Yeah. And there's too much going on. And, uh, you know, it's kind of lost. I do think it's lost its focus a little bit. So I think having, yes, this come to Jesus moment maybe and a little bit of a reset is a good idea. And and it does go beyond this this film. So uh, we'll, I think we may as well talk about it all together, yeah. right? There's also the news this week that Des and Daniel Cretton is no longer directing Avengers, the Kang Dynasty. A film that I'm not convinced will ever come out. Well, this out. is, will it be that film? Will it be that title when it does come out? When is exactly that going to happen? There have Almost obviously been not. There have obviously been some release date changes as well. Um, Secret Wars at this point is meant to be 2027, you know. So it's, there's been a lot of shifting around and I think a lot of that is a response to a sense not just of, oh no, the Marvels did underperformed. I think it's more about, okay, we need to stop and think mm, and yeah. reconsider. And yeah. I think that's to its credit. That's what we all want it to do to some yeah. degree. I, I think that they, they maybe have been stretched a little bit too thin. Maybe their overconfidence has been their weakness. <laughs> your for, faith in your friends is okay. yes. He has no faith in his friends. <laughs> for a long, long time, if you think about the MCU and how it got to this point, it was through an absolute, yes, there were still like three movies a year. I thought that only really happened after 2016. Mm. There were still three movies a year, but those movies were the sole focus uh, for, for Feige and his team. And, I, you know, I said it, I've said in the show before, I think there was a real dedication to making sure that the product was of a very, very high quality. I've said it before, people may scoff at me, but the run between Avengers in 2012 and Avengers Endgame, in fact, you could, ex- you could extend it to Far From Home if you, if you wanted to in 2019, is the greatest sustained run in the history of blockbuster, big, big budget filmmaking. Not comic book movies, the whole of it. And I, I get the feeling that the quality control maybe has slightly gone off the boil mm. a little bit at the MCU. Maybe, I don't know, Feige's a little bit stretched. Maybe there's so many TV shows uh, as well. They need to they need to maybe step back a little bit on, on that front. Although at the same time, I'm very glad that we have Kamala Khan and Jennifer Walters yeah. and Stephen Grant in the MCU. I wouldn't swap those shows. So where do you where do you really start the culling, right? Well, Secret Invasion. Secret Invasion. <laughs> it's the show that we, we, we don't really talk about. Um, but there has been, you know, there's been such variation I guess or, or the quality's been variable yeah. we can we can have all kinds of arguments and we frequently do about Thor Love and Thunder and Wakanda Forever and Multiverse of Madness you know some people think they're great some people think they're not so great and you know uh, Quantumania has united us all in acknowledgement <laughs> of its greatness <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah for me that there there is I think they have a plan but the the the, the slight failure has been in not communicating that to the audience. Yeah, and, you know, with, with the Infinity Saga, you know, at no point in the Infinity Saga really does anyone come... F- but before in- Infinity War, no one goes, there's this bloke called Thanos and he needs to get this thing and fill him with those stones and that's a bad thing. It's all incidental. It's all... The, the details pile up in various movies. But it would be helpful, I think, in phases four, five, and six if someone went, this is what's going to happen and this is a bad thing and this person's trying to make it happen, and we're the good guys who are trying to stop it. Mm. And that would be very, very, very simple. So, but sorry, you, you almost wish like 
Because there isn't any sense of that. And I think there are so many different characters and so many different groups of characters and so many different little, little sub-universes yeah. that it feels like they are all shooting off in different directions, like from the prime timeline, timeline, if you will. And and there's no yeah. sense of anybody curving back together towards... To an Avengers. To, event, to yeah. an Avengers, to a finale, to anything like that. Until actually maybe the final scene of Ms. Marvel, which I won't spoil for anyone who hasn't seen it yet. It's what you're which saying. Which is apparently yeah. a lot of people. We need to prune the branches and go back to the sacred timeline. Well, yes, but again, no spoilers for Loki either. That's a whole thing we're going to do in, in a bit. But also, yeah. I think there is, it, it, it is, there is just too much going on for that to feel essential right now. And so I think there is an element of maybe we don't need all of these characters to have be part of a, a storyline building to something shared all right now. Maybe everything doesn't have to be. 50 characters maybe it can be 20 in total you, do you know what I mean like it doesn't I, I worry that that's one of the things that people are kind of struggling well, with my worry and I've, I've said this I've said a variation of this but I was really thinking about it this morning uh, because I think a lot about the MCU and um, <laughs> and I, I kind of said something like this last week but one of the problems for me has been that they introduce characters who are really compelling really striking audiences really seem to like them whether on the big screen or on the small screen and back in the day, you would have seen that character again very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. They would have established him in a supporting role in another movie, and then they would have been a big player in an Avengers movie, and you would have really, really loved him. Doctor Strange, yeah. all right? So Doctor Strange debuts in 2016, gets mm-hmm. his own movie. His, his next follow-up movie doesn't come for six years, but that doesn't matter because he uh, cameos in Thor Ragnarok. Yeah. He is a huge player possibly the MVP uh, of Avengers Infinity War. He is... um, (laughs) That's the the beard. Sorry, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? (laughs) Uh, He is obviously a huge player in Spider-Man No Way Home as well. They keep him front and center. They keep him in people's consciousness. Consciousnesses. Consciousnesses. (laughs) Still not an easy word to say. Uh, Like Delia-ine, in fact. (laughs) Nailed it. Uh, Take take uh, Wanda Maximoff, right? Debuts in the post-credits sting of The Winter Soldier in 2014, but she's immediately a big player in Age of Ultron. She's a bigger player in Civil War after that. She's a big player in Infinity War. Gets her own TV show. Yeah. They keep her around and then, of course, you know, spoiler alert, the yeah. bad guy of Multiverse of Madness. So, so like, Kamala Khan is on the right sort of track that way. You know, she's she's there yes. in her own TV show. Then she's in the Marvels. Yes. It feels like there's a Young Avengers building. If that comes fairly soon, that would be great. Yelena or if Belova. She, or if she crosses over to hang out with Yelena in yeah. Thunderbolts or something. You know, it that that feels right. But where is Shang-Chi? Right, well, this exactly. is my thing. Like, as a yeah. character who debuts in a film which is very well received, the Eternals is his own thing. I don't think we're ever seeing those motherfuckers again. But Shang-Chi is a character who debuted, everyone made 400 million in, in COVID times. God knows what it would have made in Proper times, normal yeah. times. 700 million, something like that, maybe, I'm guessing. You know, and people would have really connected with that character. Breakthrough mm-hmm. performance for Simu Liu. And we would have seen him again. And we haven't seen him again. Yeah. The interesting thing about the Destin Daniel Cretton news Seems to be he stepped away from the Kang Dynasty, not because that movie no longer exists, which I strongly believe it doesn't, <laughs> but because he is prioritizing Shang-Chi 2, yeah. which is good. Yeah. Because I thought that Shang-Chi 2 had died on the way back to its home planet, and I'm very, very glad that they are doing that. Mm, I'm surprised that's still going, to be honest. Really? Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that was another one because it feels that like there are so many kind of, you know, branches which have been abandoned. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that the, the just go absolutely nowhere. As Helen was saying, like things we get trailed, which you never, like, we are never seeing the Eternals again ever. We will never see the dead Celestial, which apparently sticks out of the planet now. We're never going to see any of that shit again. It's just like 
Somebody said it's actually a mentioned in an upcoming thing, actually. Will really? We'll Someone said it was in She-Hulk. Apparently it was on a Oh, news, it was mentioned news, in She-Hulk. Yeah. But that was a passing thing in She-Hulk, but it's also apparently there it, is there is, is a something. bigger role for it. Somebody who claimed to have read a, a script claimed it would be a bigger role. I don't believe it. I shan't believe it. Well, well we shall see. But, we shall um, see. But either way, I, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of just loose ends and it's, and it's narratively unsatisfying that way. Yes. I want to know what Shang-Chi is doing. And it was great to see him hanging out with Wong and it was great to see Wong crossing over and hanging out with mm, She-Hulk. Yeah. But then those... Th- okay, then let's have some more crossovers, more people yeah. meeting each other. Uh, anyway. One of the reasons, of course, why the MCU might be slightly diminished is the existence of the spunk. You know, oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Films like Morbius and mm-hmm. um, the Venom movies. And, and Madame Venom. Web. Madame Web. Mm. Madame Web. Uh, um, yes. Yeah. I'll be honest. I watched this trailer for the first time while I was teaching yesterday. They were doing an assignment. It was fine. And uh, I w- so I watched it with the sound down because I didn't want to let them know that I was watching the I trailer. Even though it's my job, down. really. And I was utterly baffled by the trailer. Yeah. No, I watched it with the sound up today and it made Sign a up. little bit more sense, but it does still <laughs> seem quite dense. Yes. And I don't dense. mean stupid, I mean just like quite, like there's quite to, a lot yeah. to explain it, there. Should yeah. we explain what it is for people who do not know what we're talking about? I would like to. Jimbo, what is it? Set it up. What's Madame Webb? I mean, that's and, a very difficult thing to say. So it's... Uh, I'll do you one better. Why is Madame Webb? Why is Madame <laughs> Webb? That is the question. So this is Dakota Johnson as Madame Webb, who clearly is a bit French. But so, from what I understand, having never read any of the Madame comics... Webb. <laughs> right, Madame. I'm going to call her Madame Webb. Madame Webb. Um, and... Um, she has the ability to see selectively slightly into the future and it bleeds into her present. And there are other spider people in this and there's a weird Spider-Man looking serial killer. And it has... Played by Dahar Rahim. Indeed. And Great hair. It has... Mm. What I really liked about this is it has horror movie vibes to it. Like it has, it has, a, it has a horror feel to it, which was quite interesting to me. Like it almost had a weird Happy Death Day vibe at one point. Yes. Uh, but there is also absurd dialogue in this. There is a line, and I don't know it exactly, but it is something along the lines of, I know him, he was in the Amazon with my mother while she was researching spiders a week before she died. And you're like, oh, good God, that sentence is doing a lot of heavy lifting. That's why you pay the big bucks to Dakota Johnson. Because only she could deliver that line of dialogue. And and the the final girls in this, the girls who are being stored by the serial killer, are all spider people? Well, yeah, spider the, women. I believe, spider yes. women, yeah, they're all variations of spider women. So Sydney Sweeney, mm-hmm. uh, Isabella Merced or Mer- Merced. I have never Mer- heard her Merced, name said out loud. I'm saying Merced, who was, uh, of course, uh, Dora the Explorer, the Explorer in the oh. uh, Dora She's the adorable Explorer movie. in that film. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, Celeste Adora. O'Connor as well as Matty Franklin. Uh, Adam Scott is in it, so we could be getting an episode of Are You Talking MCU Reu <laughs> to me which I'm very excited about. And Emma Roberts there, Ben and Mary Parker. Wait a minute, Ben Parker? (gasps) What? 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 Unbelievable. Exciting stuff. Superman Legacy has found it's not villain because James Gunn objected to that word. He prefers antagonist (laughs) villain. And has cast uh, Maria Gabriela de de Faria, I think, um, as the engineer who I know nothing about. Fixes well. things, apparently. Well, yeah, okay, but I think she has, um, this is uh, Angela Speaker in this uh, in this version. I think there's been a couple of different engineers. Um, and she has nanotechnology throughout her body. So not just like Iron Man in Endgame, oh, I've got a thingy on my chest. I think it's like through her whole system. I don't know what that means she can do, but it must mean she can give 
Superman, who will of course be David Cornsweet, a run for his money. A uh, couple of last things, real, real quick. The Acme versus Coyote thing. Oh boy! What an absolute fuck what show! A fuck show. So this is an almost or is completed... it Coyote versus Acme? Um, Coyote versus Acme. Yeah. Coyote versus Acme. Yeah, this is an absolute mess. It's another almost finished movie that um, the head of Warner Brothers reportedly wanted to shelve and take a tax write-off on in response to a general outcry, because this has already had test screenings and scored very highly, actually, um, has finally turned around and said, okay, we'll try selling it to other places. So you've got this weird situation where you can have, uh, you know, a WB cartoon like very much a WB cartoon with a Paramount or Universal or whatever else logo on it because Warner Brothers can't stand over their own product, it seems, or their own films. Um, so yeah, I, this sounds really fun. I, I can't wait to see it. And I am I think it's bizarre. It's it's, it's, so but bizarre. also, it's just, it's so cynical. It's fucking hateful, actually, the behaviour of yeah. it. To take a good film and to cynically write it off without giving people a chance to see it. So much so, isn't it? On the, there, are, there are congressmen in the US like, pointing towards antitrust issues with this mm. and actually trying to make this actionable uh, to stop them from doing this kind of thing because it's anti-competitive. Uh, and, you know, creatives were cancelling meetings with Warner Brothers, understandably so, because if they're going to produce stuff, they don't want it mothballed. Like, it's yeah. absolutely disgusting. Mm-hmm. And this is a practice which has to stop. Yeah, it's really bad. Yeah. But thankfully, this hasn't gone the way of Bad Girl or that Scooby-Doo movie, Holiday Hol- Haunt. Holiday Haunt, yeah. uh, which Which got completely uh, killed. Now, you, you, those movies weren't entirely finished. Bad Girl wasn't anywhere near being finished, apparently. And Holiday Haunt was close to being finished, but wasn't. This is a movie that is finished by all uh, reports. Yeah. And for them to to even try this is just beyond egregious. Yeah. And yeah. I'm glad that it uh, it is no longer happening. Uh, and I hope it's really, really great. And I, yeah, I hope somebody else buys it and it makes a billion dollars. So do I. So do I. Speaking uh, of a billion look, dollars, there was a trailer for a Chris Pratt cartoon where he voices yes. a beloved character. Um, yes. This one's Garfield. Uh, I think that's all we need to say about that. What do we think of his voice? His voice, I thought, was fine. I just thought the the trailer looked he's, not great. He's just being Chris Pratt, though. I mean, you know... It's like, it's just Chris Pratt. Like, it's just Chris Pratt's voice being Chris Pratt. It's like, I, I'm working on my voice, guys. Here's my voice. <laughs> I've been working on it for a long time. Isn't what that do you kind think? of what he did for Mario? Super a little Mario bit, as well? yeah, yeah. It's not many miles away. Yeah. But he can, he can do voices. He, he, he did can... that amazing It's The Only Way is Essex um, impression. He's very... Yeah, he, he, he can do it if he wants to do it. But... Anyway, you know, I, I'm not a Garfield fan. I don't know enough about the character to know whether this is a, a good or bad thing. It didn't look Garfield-esque to me. Lots of shenanigans look more like a Looney Tune, to be honest. But, mm. but hey-ho. hey-ho. Uh, it'll make more money than God. And very quickly, uh, Denzel Washington is going yes. to play Hannibal, as in the general, not the cannibal. Um, I love it when for a plan comes Antoine together. Fuqua. So <laughs> I was a bit like, oh, I thought Hannibal was a lot younger than that. But it turns out I was completely wrong. He was an older gentleman by the time mm. he got his elephants all lined up in a row and marched them across yeah. the Alps. Cersei Lannister will love this film. She really will. Yeah. But um, but also, I just, I think that's cool and I'm interested to see it. Equalizer 4, baby. That's not what this is. I don't, I mean, <laughs> That's all I heard. I don't know if you can equalize with like ancient Rome, although I guess Hannibal you can historically did. equalize yeah. with elephants. They but will then, fuck your shit up. I mean, then like ancient Rome very much equalized uh, Carthage, didn't it? So, like, absolutely, it was total Carthage. It was total Carthage. Mm. All right. Saying. Anyway, time for a second guest, and uh, let me see who it is. Uh, it is Lily Gladstone. 
Woo. Lily Gladstone. Yes, told you actors are back in a big way this week on the podcast. Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon is, of course, Martin Scorsese's latest masterpiece. Uh, and it is in cinemas right now. Still no news of when it's going to hit Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, and she is front and centre in it, Lily Gladstone, as Molly Burkhart, uh, holding her own and more opposite Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro. Uh, anyway, she talked to John Nugent, who is standing outside the window of this room right now to come in for the review section. So when we come back, John Nugent will be here and it'll be like magic. How did he appear? He's Whoa. standing outside there. Anyway, they talked about a great many things and had a great time. And you will too. Here's Lily Gladstone. Do please enjoy. We are thrilled to have uh, Lily Gladstone on the Empire Podcast. How are you, Lily? I'm well. How are you? Very well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for um, for joining us. This is, um, you are the first person I've spoken to, a first actor I've spoken to since the strike was over. No kidding. Um, yeah. No kidding. Uh, congr- oh, congratulations on, on, on getting a deal. Um, Thank you. Yeah. How was your strike, first of all, I guess? You know, there was, there were elements of it where I was, had major FOMO. I wanted to be on, I wanted to be on carpets. I wanted to be with everybody experiencing these premieres. There was an element that was, I was very grateful because we did get can in beforehand and probably most importantly of all of our premieres, we had the Osage nation screening in Tulsa. That was just Mm -hmm. four days before the strike went into effect. So since then I have had a lot of time to sit back and process and really just enjoy watching Osage voices take over for the actors on the carpet. Mm. Um, It felt like it's the way that it should have been, you know, if the strike was going to happen and if it were timed, you know, it it was timed very well in that regard. There's um, it's a silver lining and it's a very bright silver lining that, um, this historic moment for natives in cinema got to have specifically the people that the story was about representing it first. And yeah. um, I got to sit back and cheer on and also listen the way the rest of the audiences who were coming into the story got to listen to what they had to say. And I'm really grateful that I can, that I can kind of step out and talk a little bit more about my role in all of it. But I'm mostly grateful that in doing so, I've had enough time to think about how to continue to conduct myself as Lily, as an actress representing the story, but not as an Osage person, but doing so um, really, really for and with them. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's been quite a, like a reflective time for you then. Yeah, it has. It has. Um, It's always been my greatest concern that they feel like they were represented the way they wanted to be, that their voices were heard. And it's also been really interesting seeing just the reception of it at large. And, Mm. you know, it has been at times frustrating, but yeah, it's, it's been a gift to have that reflection. Because one thing I did notice um, is that you recently posted a few uh, tweets on Twitter about, you know, native women watching the film and the potential for like generational grief was that was that something that had been on your mind for a little while yeah yeah and definitely got more urgent in my mind more forefront of my mind the longer the film was out it especially became paramount after watching the film with the osage nation Mm. like i've 
I've always had it in my mind that this film is going to be very difficult for a lot of people. And I recognize that being an actor on it and having time with the script, having time with the character, having so much time with the film, it's, I have a different view of it than a first time audience would. And even so I knew how it affected me the first time I watched the whole film together. So I've had a running evolving note just in my notes app on my phone and a lot of that tweet that i put out came from you know drafts that i've been kind of playing with over the last several months it became a lot clearer to me when i was sitting down because i I go back to osage county pretty often i made a lot of lifelong very dear important friendships while i was there making the film and i'm there pretty often Um, i continue to work in oklahoma Uh, and I have done several projects there since Killers. Um, So I often have the opportunity to just sit and visit with Osage people. And there was a dinner that was put together by a good friend of mine, Wilson Pipestem. You can see his name in the credits and the thanks. And I sat with him and a lot of Osage ladies who sit on Osage Congress and just talked about the film and how it affected them. And In that conversation, so many of those women do so much community building and community building in Indian country, a lot of times meaning means creating safe places for Native women, because this um, this history depicted in the film is nothing new and it hasn't gone away since the film. Violence against Native women is atrocious in the United States. Um, Some reservations like nine out of 10 women have experienced some kind of violent crime in their life. But um, in any case, I was in a room with Osage women who do this kind of work and were talking about how they were so glad that they hadn't seen it alone, that the screenings they went to were with each other, that they had people to talk to about it afterward. And that's when it became really clear to me that this whole time the the stronghold and you know not just this whole time with the movie this whole time of um post-colonial community rebuilding in indian country happens when community does it together it's um we're each other's stronghold so that was that became the message that i felt was the most important to lead with was that this is an important film and osage people by and large, are very grateful that there's a platform this big for the reign of terror to be told in a way that they had heavy Mm. consultation on. Um, That doesn't mean that it's not going to be a difficult history to confront. And I think it's, um, it's really important to acknowledge that this is an exciting moment. And I kind of put private conversations I was having with friends and who were telling me and texting me, they were so excited to go see the movie. Um, and then I would have, I would be happy and then have like a moment of pause where I'm like, oh, that's right. It's easy to let the excitement of this all overwhelm the reality of what the story is about. So hmm. that was, that was also kind of paramount in saying what I, what I ended up saying. Yeah, but you're right. It is, it is such a huge, um, I, I, I feel like it's positive that this history is being highlighted because it's certainly a history that i mean i wasn't aware of it and i don't know if it was 
something that was taught in schools in America or something no. that people were like widely aware of before this film or before the book no. was, at least? And even so in Oklahoma, where this takes place, there's a house bill that has every teacher too afraid to teach this book in their curriculum mm -hmm. because it's, it's a light banning. If there's um, a student in the classroom who feels that it's, you know, unfair to teach about particularly like white settlers in this light, if they're offended by that content in the book, the teacher could lose their teacher's license. Wow. So wow. in the States, there are active measures in a lot of places in this country that are kind of prohibiting the, the use of the book. But as Addie Roanhorse said at the LA premiere, you can't ban Martin Scorsese. Like you can ban this book in schools, but you can't ban this film being shown in theaters. Yeah. So, yeah, I um, the the only way that I had heard about it growing up was the year I was homeschooling on my reservation, and I didn't really even hear much about it then. It was before I became an actor, before I ever had any acting aspirations, I wanted to be a ballerina. And I did, I danced for a lot of years. I got uh, two, two semesters worth of point in before I decided ballet was not really for me. <laughs> but when I was a little girl on, on my res, I idolized the prima ballerina Maria Tallchief, who was Osage. Um, she was born toward the later end of uh, the Reign of Terror. But, you know, I had a kind of a self-directed learning period in homeschool. And then the year before that, uh, we had a school assignment where I had to write a letter to our hero. And I wrote a letter to Maria Tallchief. <laughs> um, and when I was talking about it with my dad, he started telling me about who the Osage were a bit. Because mm. I asked... Um, are Osage like Blackfeet? I think I asked him something like that. And uh, then he shared a couple stories with me that he was aware of. He said, oh yeah, like kind of when we got our food rations, those old Blackfeet would have a big um, sack of flour and they didn't know what to do with it at first. So they'd take like handfuls of it and throw it up in the air and watch the wind take it away. And that was like a game before <laughs> like started cooking with it and made what's now fry bread. Um, but then he also talked about how in the Osage, they were wealthy from oil money. And he told me the story that is depicted in the film. It's pretty well known about um, Osages in that first generation buying their first car, driving it all over, all, all over the place. And then when it ran out of gas, they would just go back and buy another car. <laughs> and you see that that moment in the beginning, wow. the car salesman saying, you know, anything you know you get a dent in the bumper you run out of gas you just come right back and buy another one <laughs> people <laughs> built a whole economy on really exploiting this osage oil wealth you know mm. so you know people eventually caught on but that was just a funny little story my dad told me about this transitional period of our people you know acquiring these new things mm. um before we really make them our own and then he talked about he, said, he just said very briefly about how a lot of Osages were killed for their oil money, and that was kind of it. So I was aware that that happened, but the way that my brain interpreted it in fifth grade, you know, I was worried about Maria Tallchief's family. Um, I also just kind of accepted that those kind of histories were common for all natives, you know. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, the idea of being of incompetence and the guardianship system that was set up with Osage was also not unfamiliar. We didn't have Blackfeet didn't have a guardianship program per se, but American Indians with any kind of mineral resource wealth were all deemed as wards of the U.S. government and competent of handling those finances. And um, Osages were appointed individual guardians, as is depicted in the film. Mm. But uh, we all, like all nations, had to, um, for a long time, actually, there's a huge lawsuit that was brought about by a Blackfeet woman named Eloise Cabell, who was the first civilian to successfully sue the federal government because of mismanagement of Indian trust funds. Um, she was, she started the Native American bank. Uh, the first branch was on my reservation. And when she was managing people's finances, she kept noticing that, well, you guys are leasing out your, you know, your allotment for ranching or you're leasing out your allotment for natural gas. Where's this money? And as it turned out, because native people were across the country declared incompetent of handling finances, that money was being forwarded to the United States Treasury with no forwarding address. So it accumulated wow. several billion dollars at the end. It accumulated in the Treasury. And that money was, you know, in the 1970s, it was used to bail out the Chrysler Corporation. It was um, just kind of this pot of money that the government used for different means that was really um native american resource money was our trust fund it's our trust money so in learning about the osage reign of terror there were a lot of specific things from the book and from the research that we pulled um from the book and with the community the film added a lot to the our the process of making the film added a lot to the story that mm. um, is all true doesn't necessarily show up in the book, but, you know, for example, Molly's guardian, Pitts Beatty, being a clan member, um, that's not referenced in the book, but it's in the FBI files. So all of these little elements coming to light just paint a much more specific picture of how these systems were maintained for so long. And I think it's so important that we have a film that really calls people into this into a perspective into watching it from um this lens of uh self-examination you know mm. what's your own level of complicity in this kind of systemic ongoing um oppression it's this ongoing sort of cultural genocide this ongoing you know unaddressed inequity yeah, like you say, I mean, it is such an important film, but also mm -hmm. done in such a sort of riveting, classically like Martin Scorsesean sort of way. Um, and and yeah, as as we speak, it's been out for a little while now, you know, and usually we'd be talking before the film right. come out, but a lot of people have had the chance to see it now. Uh, like, what is mm -hmm. what has been your uh, a reaction to the film that has, that has really stuck with you? I guess it has been moving how many people are calling for more. The, um, you know, the old narrative is that this film wouldn't have been worth anybody's time if it wasn't being helmed by Leo and Bob. And of mm -hmm. course, like they are masters. They make this movie as compelling and as incredible as it is. It's also really wonderful 
in that, that Molly's story didn't get swallowed up or overshadowed by it and that people are actively wanting to see what's next or wanting to know more or saying that the moments when Molly's not on screen, you miss her. And I felt that watching it in a way that I didn't anticipate I would having played her watching it from essentially the audience's point of view for the first time. I felt what I've heard other people say since and other people who aren't, you know, this isn't exclusively coming from like native people. The consensus I'm seeing is that Molly as the heart of the film is where people are hanging a lot of their experience. And I think that's just a really beautiful testament to people are hungry for these stories. People want to know more. Mm. I mean, people's, People's general call for more of the Osage in this film, more Molly's presence in this film, even though it is the beating heart of it, just tells me that what a lot of Native filmmakers are hearing, I mean, including my very good friend and frequent collaborator, Erica Tremblay, we have a film that premiered at Sundance this year called Fancy Dance that still hasn't sold. And Erica has been told many times that it's a great film, but we don't really have a market for this. And she said, basically, so what they're saying to me is that we can't sell a film with a Native American actress as the lead, mm. and that being the story. Whereas what I'm hearing from people who have seen Killers of the Flower Moon and then have sought out Fancy Dance that is still doing some festival rounds, what I've heard more than once is that seeing Fancy Dance and seeing this very nuanced, developed, loving relationship between an aunt and her niece, and that love being what withstands this long legacy, this ongoing legacy of colonization and trying to fracture families, their love is still strong and their love of their culture, community, language is all strong. Um, there was one person at the Seattle screening my mom told me about because I couldn't go to that. <laughs> um, Fancy Dance was also struck work, unfortunately. Mm. But um, yeah, she said a, a young man in his probably mid-20s stood up and said, I saw Killers of the Flower Moon yesterday and I encourage everybody to see it because it's important and it's wonderful. But everything I was left wishing there were more of in that film is addressed in this film, Fancy Dance. And the two feel like they're supposed to go together. So I'm just so encouraged that the response has been tipping, you know, tipping the scales to wanting to see more representation of these stories. Definitely. I mean, I, I, I definitely felt like Molly kind of looms over the whole film, even when you're not on screen, you know, she's totally. kind of like the soul of the, of the film in a way. Totally. Um, and also, I don't know if you saw this recently, but there was like a movie theater that had on its awning uh, Killers of the Flower Moon starring <laughs> Lily Gladstone and, and some, some other guys, guys. <laughs> which is yeah. very yeah. funny. Um, it's, um, as it turns out, that movie theater is about a four hour drive from my parents' house. <laughs> oh, there you go. That's great. <laughs> so my dad's birthday wish was to go down and see the marquee in person. And yeah. it's uh, that that theater, uh, Lake Cinema, is in Willamette, uh, Willamette, Oregon, and that's Kelly Reichert's territory. So of course, oh, no <laughs> that way. theater yeah. is the one that embraced 
the the Lily Gladstone of it because nobody nobody who loves everybody who loves Kelly is still not over certain women, still not over the yeah. rancher. So it's. Uh, oh, I mean, I'm not over certain women. Put it that way. But, uh, <laughs> um, Thank you. But I, I have to let you go soon. I, there was one thing I would really love to know. I, I saw recently. And please tell me if this is true. I hope it is. You got into acting because of your love of Ewoks. <laughs> Ewoks from Star Wars. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is 100% true. <laughs> so you saw I, these little furry creatures and you were like, that, I, I want to be that. That. I mean, I was <laughs> I was five when uh, Battle for Endor came out. Um, mm. and of course, like the only thing that I remember about uh, Return of the Jedi um was the Ewoks just yeah I loved it Willow was also one of my favorite films so I didn't know that I was such a huge Warwick Davis fan as a as a kid but in any case I was old enough to know I was watching a movie but still young enough to believe the magical realism of it all that the Ewoks were not real real but they were real enough that if I wanted to be one I just had to become an actor so, um, yeah, yeah. And I've had, uh, I've had some Star Wars nerds kind of not, you know, quell that, uh, that want to play an Ewok. Cause there's a lot that can be done in this day and age, but there are, there are ways that the Ewok story, especially as a story of indigenous resistance. <laughs> and so um, yeah. there's a lot of people that will say the Ewoks are the ones that defeated the empire really it was literally if we talk about it but yeah it's like that's they're the most powerful force in the in the galaxy totally yeah they are fun little teddy bears that deeply deeply love their land and (laughs) love love their people and you know they're just they're just doing it so i didn't realize as a kid that maybe i was drawn to them because they really are a very strong indigenous narrative in the star wars universe but yeah yeah, I just That's really I, cool. think I, I I just want to live in a treehouse. Really, is what it's about. <laughs> so, is is this your pitch to Lucasfilm? Then, or do we are we going to see Lily Gladstone in a Star Wars movie <laughs> one day? Maybe if not as an Ewok, maybe as the bounty hunter that went rogue in the Battle of Endor to uh, switch sides to fight for the Ewoks against the Empire. <laughs> that would be that would be what I could do in this form as an adult who's five seven and a half. <laughs> I mean, I think we all want to see that. It's, I mean, it couldn't be any any more different to Killers of the Flower Moon, but I'm, I'm so here for it. For sure. Thank you so much, John. <laughs> Thank you, Lily. It's been a real pleasure. You too. Thank you. Okay, that was Lily Gladstone. And of course, Killers of the Flower Moon is out in cinemas right now. How was she, John? Good? She was very good. Yes, yeah, she was lovely. Hang on a second, where'd you come from? Oh, hello. It's John Nugent. Hello. Gasp. Oh, my words. Hello. Guest, special guest appearance. I set people up. I, I told them you were standing outside. Oh, okay. So, so, yeah. It would have been a great magic trick to suddenly reveal you, but not in the sex way, but, you know, just in a welcome to the show type way. Anyway, yes. John, shut up. Um, okay. She was good, Lily Gladstone. <laughs> she was, she was uh, yes, lovely and charming and thoughtful and intelligent and all of everything you want from an interviewee. Excellent. Uh, John is here to add ballast to our reviews section because now it is the reviews section and John is the reviews editor of Empire. That is your job title, Uh, John? uh, Yes, technically, yes. That is what I'm paid for. you are paid to watch films and... I feel like I'm about to be set up. (laughs) Uh, So, John, have you seen The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes? 
Uh, well, define scene. Um, <laughs> that sounds like a no. Have your eyes feasted upon the Songbirds of Snakesy movie? Uh, look, I'm very busy. Oh. Um, Have you seen Saltburn? Again, very, like, a lot going on. What the fuck have you seen, John? <laughs> I have seen May, December. All right, good. I've also seen what? many other films that are out on different weeks. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, we'll, we'll tell people about Citizen Kane. What's that like? Uh, let's talk about May, December, and then we'll we'll work backwards to the, the, the biggies. Okay. Not, not to say that the Todd wow. Haynes movie is not a biggie. But you know, come on, it's it doesn't a, have it's a huge. It's um, it's, it's a huge. It's a, it's, <laughs> a it's if that's a word. It's a major. Todd Haynes is, I think, it's a major. It's a major. It's yeah. a oh boy. Um, anyway, I've just got crap on my leg. <laughs> I'm just sitting down. What the fuck is wrong with me? Anyway, John, please tell the people about May December. May December, yes. Uh, so Todd Haynes, of course, we know Todd Haynes from the likes of Carol of Far From Heaven. Uh, safe, safe, poison. Yeah. I'm not there. I'm not there. I mean, he's he's had a really interesting career. Mm -hmm. um, this is him in his sort of melodrama frequency, I suppose. It's maybe more oh, similar to um, Carol or Far From Heaven. I think it's uh, yeah, it's a really interesting film. So um, it stars uh, Julianne Moore and uh, Natalie Portman and Charles Melton, who's an actor that I wasn't really familiar with, but who... He's Bad in Boys River... for Life. Yeah, he's in Bad Boys for Life. He's in Riverdale. Riverdale is oh. where people... That's obviously where I was going there. Obviously, thanks. Yeah. I know you're a huge fan. Yeah. Um, but, you know, on the strength of this film, I feel like we're going to be yeah. seeing a lot more of him. I thought he was fantastic and really holds his own against two, you know, absolute acting titans like Julianne Moore and, and Natalie Portman. So... Yeah. Yes, this is uh, this is about a tabloid scandal that happened years earlier. Uh, so Julianne Moore and Charles Melton play a couple who got together when uh, Charles Melton's character Joe was only thirteen years old, and there was a tabloid scandal that erupted. Julianne Moore's character Gracie was an adult at the time. Uh, a tabloid scandal erupted around this relationship. Uh, Gracie actually went to prison as a result. Um, and they remained together. They remained a couple. They had kids. 20 years after they, they first get together, they're still together. They have kids. Uh, and Natalie Portman's character, who is a famous actor, joins the family home in order to research uh, a film in which she will be playing Gracie. Um, and uh, the, the home truths start to emerge as a result of her visits. Mm. Uh, the the sort of the relationship unravels the the sort of strange toxic way that this couple got together starts starts to sl quietly unfurl, um, and it is yeah it's a it's sort of melodrama in the I guess the classical sense it's it's kind of soapy almost it's very glossily shot it's really you know very sort of southern. Um, beautiful locations there's a fantastic score i think uh, todd haynes borrows um the score from a film called the go-between from the 1970s yeah. um which lends it a really like sort like of like a thriller era, isn't yeah, it? yeah yeah very over the top thriller mm. um in a really uh, in a quite a funny way you know there's some orchestra stabs for lines of dialogue like i don't think we have enough hot dogs you know <laughs> Um, Julianne Moore has some excessive weeping over a pineapple cake at one point. You know, there, there's some Julianne Moore excessive weeping in a film. I'm sold. <laughs> I know. It's um, there's a lot of crying in a, in a fantastic way. It's it's very funny. It's very droll, but it's also very like insightful and thoughtful. And there is just 
insanely good performances yeah. from the three leads. Um, and, and just a huge amount going on under the surface. So yeah. the the manipulation and the viciousness that Gracie is capable of yeah. really kind of comes up in a, in a couple of scenes. One scene with her daughter trying on dresses is literally made m- myself and my friend who was with me just go, oh! <gasps> <laughs> like just gasp with horror at how vicious she had just been. And mm. it's it's one of those things where, you know, if you don't know almost the code, you don't necessarily hear how nasty what she just said was. But it's very much about these two women who are both, you know, beautiful, both present this outward, you know, perfection, having really some messed up stuff underneath. And I think Natalie Portman's character as well, there's really interesting things to say here about the nature of acting and and what it me- how how you can ever get into character as another person, whether that's just a ridiculous thing to sort of assume in the first place. And so that that kind of that's a an, a really interesting take on acting as a thing that I think the film delves into, as well as her as a character. Um so yeah, I th- I thought that the two of them it really does feel like a clash of the titans at times. You're yeah. really like, oh, I don't know who has the upper hand in this scene, but but then there's this sort of final twist of the knife from one of them, and you're like, oh. Shit. Yeah, amazing. It's yeah, it's very good. And like you say, Helen, yeah, it's sort of about the artifice mm. of of um, performance and fiction in a way. Um, and yeah, there's it's. Oh, I I had a great time with it. I think it, it it has been divisive from people. Some people's reactions that I've seen. Some people didn't get on with the sort of tone of it because it is, you know, almost deliberately a bit cringe. You know, but I think if you if you get on board with that, then you'll have a great time. Amazing. Sounds good. So this is in cinemas right now, yeah. but it'll be on Sky very, very soon in a few weeks' time. I think 8th of December uh, on Sky Cinema. Uh, but you can go see it in uh, proper cinemas right now. So May, December, four stars for that. Uh, remake, of course, of the classic BBC One sitcom starring Anton Rogers oh, as a solicitor who marries a much younger woman. I, I don't think... Don't think that's Don't true. think so, yeah. actually, Chris. That's, yeah, we're, in the, we're in the ballpark. We're in the ballpark. Uh, next up, we have Saltburn, which is the return of Emerald Fennell after she won an Oscar for her screenplay for Promising Young Woman. Mm. Has this Promising Young Woman, oh, Helen, boy. fulfilled that promise? Somewhat. I, th- I, yeah, I'm a bit mixed on this one. So this is set, it begins in Oxford in 2006 and you have Oliver Quick, played by Barry Keoghan. Great name. Great, great name, who is kind of, um, you know, comes from a difficult background and uh, finds himself feeling very much like uh, he's left out by around all these public school kids who apparently know each other. And chief among them is um, Jacob Elordi's Felix, who is just, you know, casually drop dead gorgeous casually rich just just everything comes very easily to him he's he's wildly privileged but he just kind of wears it lightly he thinks that's just the way life is you know um so he uh, gradually befriends oliver he invites him back to saltburn the family home uh for the summer and um and then it gradually becomes clear that oliver's friendship with felix may not be 100% healthy um and also that felix's life is is really odd and weird and Saltburn is an artificial and strange place. So um, I I have a lot of notes about the Oxford scenes in this film, I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> I have a lot of notes because this is set in 2006. It's not set in 1973. So the idea that everyone else in your college knows each other from public school and or being rich is ludicrous, right? That is not the case. That is l- just nonsense. However, I'm just going to go with it because I I get that that's the idea of the film. But 
once it gets to Saltburn, I mean, the characters are fantastic. You've got Richard E. Grant and Rosamund Pike playing Felix's parents. You've got Archie Madikwe as this... Um, From just, C, the greatest show on earth. I mean, <laughs> I can't even with it. What? Anyway, he plays he plays the sort of slightly down on his luck cousin who's just like jealous of everything Felix has. Everybody's jealous of everything Felix has. Who wouldn't be jealous of everything Felix has? Um, and, and there's a lot of really pointed class comedy of kind of satire, of really, really clever scenes involving just the cluelessness of these people. My issue with this film is really that the third act goes in some bizarre directions. And I don't think, I don't think it says what, I don't know, if it says what I think it's saying. I don't think this means what you think it means. It's kind of that. It really is. Like, if it's saying what I think it's saying, then it's saying, oh, the poor upper classes, they're at risk from us. And I don't really think that's true. Um Maybe I'm wrong and that's not what it's saying, in which case I think it maybe missed a couple of steps. So, like, it's really good performances. It's a fantastic cast. It it really emphasizes that this is the year of Jacob Lordy um, with Priscilla coming up, you know, just behind this. He's really, really going from, you know, teen heartthrob to, to kind of A-list star. But, and it, Barry Keoghan, always great, like, hasn't put a foot wrong, I think, anywhere in his career so far. But I just, I just didn't, I, I don't, it, it really lost me. I'm yeah. gonna be honest. It really lost me. This is one of those sh- films. I think you. I think the first hour of this is brilliant, mm. <laughs> and then something goes awry. And I think, like, so when they're at Oxford, I really enjoyed doing the Oxford stuff, and sort of when he's ingratiating himself, this working class lad ingratiating himself with these incredibly posh entitled people, and it's lots of commentary on class and social mobility and all of these wonderful things. Then you get to Saltburn and it steps up a notch. You've got Richard E. Grant and Rosamund Pike as these ridiculous caricatures, but I mean that in a positive way because mm. they are deliberate satires and they're so funny. Rosamund Pike is oh my God. fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Carrie Mulligan's in it, albeit briefly. Uh, but Rosamund Pike, some, there's a line about Jarvis Cocker which had me properly laughing out loud. I will, see, I will say for those of you who have seen Fair Play, uh, there is a scene in this which... Twice in one year, it's quite extraordinary. Uh, but there is a, I, I hesitate to call it a sex scene, but whatever it is, it's a lot. You'll know it when you see it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I mean, this film is a lot, quite frankly. Mm. And it goes to some such bizarre places. And I feel like the last act of this film, which I will not spoil, is both too much, but also quite basic and predictable. Mm. And I feel like it goes to a stupid lengths. And I was really disappointed because I felt it had been so good up until that point. And I thought if they'd stopped it maybe 15 minutes earlier, I'd have actually really liked this film. But it, it's it, it, there are a lot of rug pulls towards the end. It's twist after twist after twist. And I think the one twist, great, go with it, finish the film. But then there's another twist, and then there's another twist, and then there's another twist. And it just feels like it just goes too far. And I couldn't really get on board with it. I will say to this, Shifty Barry, Barry Keoghan, to say that man commits to this role <laughs> is a fucking understatement. There are at least two sequences in this which will have you going, holy shit, Barry, fucking fair play to you, mate. Um, quite extraordinary. So, I mean, it, it's a showcase for Barry and he's spectacular in this. He really mm. is. And it's wonderfully shot and the setting is amazing. It's a beautiful film, but it is batshit and it strains credulity and it's also deeply fucking stupid as it gets towards the end. So it's a mixed bag, I yeah, think, really. Yeah. Uh, we, we give it three stars. We gave it three, that. I think that's fair. It, it's a bit of a mess, but there are kernels of genius in it. 
Who plays Colonel of Genius? <laughs> <laughs> you could see that joke coming, but there's just nowhere to run. Is that know? Richard E. Grant? <laughs> yes. yes. He yeah. plays Colonel Genius. Colonel of, Colonel of Genius. Uh, all right, three stars in for Saltburn. Let's wrap this up with the Hunger Games movie, the title of which is so long, I cannot even say it, or we will run out of time. Yeah. Jimbo, only you have seen it. Only not, I. Not John, whose job it is to <laughs> see these films. Uh, or Helen, who was in Northern Ireland and has a cold. I mean, I did. I was. Don't ask where I was. <laughs> not important where I was or what I was doing. May the odds be ever in my favour. Oh, yes. uh, yeah, so Francis Lawrence returns now for the Hunger Games prequel movie based on the book of the same name, The Hunger Games, colon, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. By Suzanne Collins. By Suzanne again. Collins, indeed. Uh, and this is, and you can't get away from this fact, this is a villain origin story focused around Coriolanus. Coriolanus Snow or Anus to his friends uh, played by Donald Storm's uh, coming up Annie <laughs> Storm's coming Annie uh, played by Donald Sutherland obviously in the original films played here by Tom Blythe uh, and it's his interaction with Rachel Zegler's character she plays a character called Lucy Gray Baird and she is one of the tributes chosen at the 10th annual Hunger Games uh, Cori- Coriolanus is uh, a privileged boy from the capital and he is tasked with being her mentor through this Hunger Games sequence. So this is a film, much I assume like the book, which is split into largely speaking three chapters. It is a different Hunger Games from the one that you'll be familiar with from the earlier films. It's not quite as elaborate. There's not as much showmanship to it. It's like proto-Hunger Games. And then there is a whole other chapter at the end. And the reason why there's a whole other chapter at the end is this film is two hours and 38 minutes minutes long and it is a slog because the problem with this film is it has a very subdued palette it has an incredibly bleak almost nihilistic tone to it and it's two hours and 38 minutes long and it makes it just quite dour and quite dull so it's quite a lot and you know and i know the hunger games are actually quite violent and they're not aimed at young children you know they are you know 12 rated films but this feels much more adult because it's the tone is so oppressive and it leans more into the politics of Pan Am than it does into the spectacle of the games. And that's fine because the politics are very interesting. But I would say the politics of these YA novels are so archetypal and, let's be honest, a little bit basic and reductive that leaning into the politics doesn't really give you much to work with. In addition to that, Anus himself is not a particularly well-rounded character. He's not, He's not a well-rounded well-rounded anus. He's not a great Anus no, as far as Anuses go. <laughs> And, you know, I just genuinely, I don't care. I don't think Coriolanus Snow needed a backstory. Bit cheeky. And he's he's not in himself massively interesting. Whereas Lucy Gray, Rachel Zegler's character, is very interesting, but she is, frankly, a supporting character. So she's not someone you spend a great deal of time with. You only see him when she is in the orbit of the anus. You don't get to spend time with her specifically. So you find yourself yearning to spend time with this interesting character, but being stuck round the anus. But this is, this works, right? Because he grows up to be a massive asshole. He does indeed grow up to be a massive asshole. But that's the other part of the problem, that your central character is anus by name and anus by nature, and you're fucking stuck with him. And he's not that interesting. He's not particularly well drawn. And so, and, and that added that to the tone and the length. The whole thing feels like a bit of a slog. So <laughs> when I got to the end of the anus, I, I, I genuinely, all the way through, I've been thinking two stars, two stars, two stars, two stars, two stars. And we gave this film two stars. But when it had finished, when I had left the anus, when I'd left it behind, I looked back on it. 
And like I thought, East Ventura from the Rhino. I looked back <laughs> yeah. at the anus, and honestly, in retrospect, I liked it more than I did in the moment. While I was in the anus, if you will, I did not enjoy myself. We may have extended this metaphor. Again, do you think? We've, yeah. we've beaten far. the anus to death. Yes. Right, fine. Oh, okay. I, I So after the film, I actually liked it more because I, 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 I thought, so, it's so bleak and it does some really fucking dark things that in retrospect I found it quite interesting but I was quite miserable while watching it because I found it very long and dour and dull so Ben Travis you know you know bubbly effervescent Ben Travis sat yes. next to me literally whooped and clapped at the end I thought it was because it was over but no 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 he really really liked it like genuinely loved it so but then Ben does love everything so that with a pinch of salt I would probably have gone three rather than two but I will say... It didn't sound like it, to be No, honest. I know, I know. But, and as I describe it, I'm describing a two-star film, but looking back on it, I think, you know, it is probably a three, not a two, but it is long, it is dour, it is dull. It does do some interesting things, but I think to a certain extent, you have to really kind of dig around to find them. Oh. I'm not going there. No, I am not going there. That's, not a, that's an open there. goal. Yeah, don't, don't do that's it. A, I'm not... I'm not... No, no. Nope. So there you go. Two stars. Hey, yes, do Helen. you know who played Coriolanus on stage? Tom Hiddleston. That's right. There we go. Did he? Yeah, yeah. he did. Yeah. I saw him. He we was talked extremely about this many, good many in the role. I, I many, listening. Many, 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 many wonderful, wonderful times. times. Two oh, stars then for The Hunger Games, The Songbird of Anus, or whatever, I don't know, <laughs> whatever it's called. Who knows? Anyway, we're doing a spoiler special for it. You're banned. <laughs> Wow. Like you're fucking banned from the Miss Marvel movie, you're bangle nonsense. You're going to be banned from this one. <laughs> Banished from the land, that's you. Two yeah. stars for this. Premium anus, that will be. <laughs> that was, yeah, that'll be an hour-long anus. Coriolanus Plus. You can subscribe to hear James talking about bumholes. Yeah. Quality content. Uh, anyway, on that note, that is almost there for this week's Empire Podcast, but Helen uh, mentioned Tom Hiddleston to remind me that... The final guest this week is Tom Hiddleston. Hurrah! Which is Hurrah. very, very exciting indeed. A low-key guest. Hey, You're back in. <laughs> you're back in the game. Back in the Ex- Exile. Oh, oh, no, you're Come back on. out again. Oh, no. In, out, in, out. Oh, my word. Shake it all uh, about. <laughs> Jesus Christ, what's wrong with you? Anyway, Loki season two has finished its run triumphantly, I would say, on Disney Plus. Finished last week uh, with an absolute belter of an episode, which, which um, ended in very interesting ways, shall we say? Mm. Yes. For for the god of mischief, I'm not going to say anything about it. But what I will say is that we uh, got an interview with Tom Hiddleston. Uh, he was kind and gracious enough to set aside nearly 40 minutes of his time to have a natter with us uh, for a Loki spoiler special, Loki season two spoiler special. Uh, and you are going to hear now about 10 to 15 minutes of that to wet your whistle, to wet your appetite, should you wish to dive into the larger, greener waters of the Loki season two spoiler special, which we're recording our bit of immediately after this. But you have about 35 to 40 minutes of Tom Hiddleston awaiting you. So... What I gotta say is this, obviously, if you have not seen Loki Season 2, this is entirely about Loki Season 2, so don't listen to this if you haven't seen it or don't wish it to be spoiled. Uh, But if you have, then this is going to be a little bit of what you can expect when you hear the full thing. Here is Tom Hiddleston. Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on this Loki Season 2 spoiler special by Loki himself. Tom Hiddleston, how are you, sir? I am very well. Indeed. It is so good to see you. Likewise. I'm so honored to be on the podcast, on oh, the pod. On the pod, on the pod, yeah. bangly bang and all that stuff. Uh, Tom, this bang, isn't bang. the first time we've had this conversation, is it? <laughs> I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to do the, I'm trying to remember the thing I did. You think this is the first time. No, we're caught in a time loop. We're caught in a time loop that's been going on for 13 years. 
Um, <laughs> and every time we go back, it seems to be richer and more profound. We do it faster. We go sooner. We go earlier. But this is where we are now. Better? Are we doing it better, Tom? I think so. It's sharper. <laughs> it's more precise. That's the way you look anyway. <laughs> Believe me, you look sharper and more precise. I do not. I look like a wreck of a human being right now. Uh, but thank yeah. you. For being, you're being very, very kind indeed. Uh, listen, I loved it. I loved this episode. I loved I loved the way this, this season ended. Um, I think this episode may be one of the best things Marvel has ever done. Um, which wow, is Chris, I'm to hear you say that honestly, it is, I'm really, um, honored by that because I know you know this world, um, and you and your fellow travelers, um, at Empire of such lethal cunning are forensic analysts of, um, of the work that we've done. And so for you to say that means a great deal. Thank you. It is such an interesting way for for Loki to end up, and we'll, we'll talk about whether this is an ending or a new beginning in due course. But uh, I spoke to Kevin Wright just before the season began, and he was talking about how this is possibly the only Marvel project since the, since the MCU began in two thousand and eight that hasn't had any additional photography. So therefore, I'm guessing that this ending was in the works from the beginning that Loki ends up. The master of his own domain, uh, holding the MCU together. He is Atlas. He's Atlas <laughs> holding up, holding up the Earth. Um, we, we, I guess we, yeah, we. It was it was very um, fulfilling to to plan and construct and lay down the track for our story and and play it out and finish it. And for it to be, there was, it all hangs together. We didn't have to go, we didn't have to go back in. Um, and, um, we thought very carefully, I mean, I, I should, I should, um, I just want to take a moment to pay respect to Kevin Wright for the atmosphere he created, um, as a producer on this series from the first season into the second, which was that we all synchronized our imaginations really early on um, in development, in pre-production, during the filming and in post to make sure we were all, you know, synchronized watches and singing from the same song sheet. And a lot of that was thematic conversations. It was understanding the key that we were playing in almost like a piece of music. And, um, It's very deliberate that episode six of season two is called Glorious Purpose. Episode one of season one is called Glorious Purpose, which, of course, you know, and your listeners will know, is a quote from one of his most iconic lines from Avengers. I am Loki of Asgard and I am burdened with glorious purpose. And it seemed like across 12 episodes, we were investigating, rethinking and redefining what that means not just for Loki, but for every character. Uh, because ever since I was first cast and Kenneth Branagh and Don Payne, the late, great Don Payne, who mm. was a screenwriter for Thor, and I started thinking about Loki in 2009, he was always engaged with ideas of belonging, of identity, and purpose. In that first film, 
He's a prince of Asgard, the second son, a younger brother. But within 30 minutes, he feels like he doesn't belong to that family. He doesn't know where he fits in the universe. He doesn't know what his place is in Asgard, and therefore he doesn't know what his purpose is, doesn't know where he belongs. And he'll never have the burden of the inherited mantle of the throne. And so taking that early um, cue, I suppose, and unpacking it for Loki and for the TVA and for all these characters seemed like the, the right way to go. And it was such a thrilling and fruitful um, period of, of kind of creative conversations and development as we were thinking it's, it is, I, I've talked about it a little bit already. Um, and I think other people have mentioned that I, I did it, but I, I was referred to, to, um, the four quartets by T.S. Eliot, which mm -hmm. is just an extraordinary piece of writing about time and conf confronting reality, um, and, uh, grief and move and, and making peace with the past, which I, I think I'm right in saying Eliot wrote in response to the collective suffering of second world war. But it's so abstract. If you take that historic context away, some of the lines are just, they're so thought provoking in terms of how we move forward, what any of us might think of as, as uh, meaning in our lives. And there was one passage at the end, we shall not cease from exploration. And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And if we arrive where we started with Loki, it's in uh, being a god, uh, it's in purpose, it's in belonging, it's in possibly a big chair with a lot of responsibility, um, but it's not in the shape he thought it would come in, it's not in a shape he would recognize. It's taken a journey of a thousand miles to get there, and it could only be at the end of that journey. Um, and in a way, in his end is his beginning. Um, so yes, is a long answer. So so when did the conversation was it was it before season two began that the 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 first conversations were had about this specific ending, about ending with Loki on that throne holding the timeline together, holding the universe together, making the ultimate sacrifice that I really want to dig into. I really want to dig into how you positioned Loki emotionally to get him to that point. But first of all, those conversations were they were they had early on? The initial, yes, the initial conversations that I remember having were around healing the fracture of that first episode of season one. Somehow, that he at the end of episode one of season one, he is a completely broken soul. He watches his execution at the hands of Thanos and laughs to himself dismissively and dejectedly, glorious purpose. Mm. And Mobius comes back in, and I think he's absolutely, he's completely shattered by the revelation that his whole life was meaningless. He was born to lose, born to lose so that others could be the best version of themselves. And Mobius says, so you do know yourself. And he says, a villain. And Mobius says, 
It's not how I see it. I can't offer you salvation, but I can offer you something different. And he's given a second chance. And I know in that early, early conversations with Kevin Wright and Eric Martin, we wanted to make good on that second chance. Um, that, and also to feel that his redemption on the sacred timeline wasn't wasted, that there was another way. And so I don't think it was the image of the finale was, was specifically kind of outlined in bold or etched in stone, but it was sketched as an idea that we were heading towards that feeling, if that makes sense. Mm. And as we started developing, it just became incredibly exciting because we had created um, all kinds of, you know, we knew we had to dig into um, the consequences of the end of episode six of season one. Sylvie kills he who remains. And what happens to the timeline? What happens to the multiverse? There are huge consequences to her actions for her. There are huge consequences to her actions for the TVA. Everyone who works at the TVA, Mobius, B-15, Casey, Renslayer, they all know that the TVA maybe was less benevolent and well-meaning than they thought. And actually, there's a moral ambiguity to their actions. Wait, we were kidnapping people from the timeline? We were, we were, we were erasing their memories? Are we the good guys? Mm-hmm. Are we the bad guys? You know? So everybody is facing ed- existential doubt. And um, we, we kind of knew we had to keep interrogating these ideas for every character. Um, and then I, I remember specifically the day when we were talking about um, because of what Sylvie does, because of Sylvie's actions at the end of episode six of season one, she's, she's somehow fractured temporal reality. She's broken the timeline. And in creating a multiverse, when we kept thinking about what would it mean? How, how does time work? How does the TVA run? Does the TVA run off of what energy source does it run off? And Kasra Farahani, our production designer, whose work on this series across both seasons is absolutely extraordinary. You know, he built the TVA mm. out of his own head. What a brilliant man. And he was in the writer's room and he started sketching this loom because we were talking about a kind of energy source, like something in an engine room, like a generator or something. And he was sketching the loom and that there were like an old fashioned loom that was weaving the threads of time, but in a multiverse, almost like um, a blocked pipe. There were too many strands for the loom to weave at the same time and then it was as we were thinking of the story it was like that's an amazing problem to have like for the the characters i mean Mm -hmm. that actually because of what sylvie does they all have they're all worried about the loom exploding and then there's no timelines anywhere nobody gets free will no one gets life and across across trying to the kind of immediate problem of trying to fix the loom Every character is also thinking about, well, what's, what's my own life? Where's my own purpose? Where do I find meaning? And that's true across the board. For Sylvie, it's about, doesn't matter about the TVA, collateral damage. She just wants to go and, 
you know, literally try everything off the menu in McDonald's as it happens to be in the eighties in, in, um, Broxton. Um, and for Mobius, it's wondering, it's resisting, but wondering about that life on the timeline for B15. It's this sense of duty that she should stay, but also knowing that when Sylvie enchanted her in the parking lot in Rock's car, she looked happy. Yeah. Renslayer, it's like, okay, the timekeepers aren't real. Never mind. There's a power vacuum. I guess I'll take it. It felt like a, and that I just, that was a really fruitful and um, productive time in development when suddenly we had this ticking clock, uh, the problem of the, of the loom, but it was also a vehicle for exploring free will and whether any of us are in charge of our own story. Can you rewrite the story? Can you make your own choices? Mm. Do the choices you make add up to the picture of your life? And for Loki, who can't go back to his life because he knows that on the timeline he gets executed by Thanos, he's got to find a new purpose. He's got to find new meaning. I mean, I, I thought that was that was fascinating. I mean, the the this season's really interesting in that it doesn't give us the god of mischief. There are maybe a couple of flashes of the old Loki. There's the horns gag in in episode two on on the wall. There's that that exchange in episode two as well, where Brad is challenging Loki. He says, "You know, you're a, you're a villain. You're good at it. Do that instead." But uh, but otherwise, this is you. Kevin, Eric, Benson and Moorhead, you know, Kazra, all, all the creative yeah. team, determinately plowing a new furrow for this character. And I think it's in order to get him to this point where he will make the ultimate sacrifice, not just for the universe, but on the micro mm. level, that's the macro, but on the, on the micro level for his friends. We, we always felt like, because he's so shattered by the end of, by what happens in season one, that the challenge that you'd have to change in some regard. I think he'd be, I think he's still tempted. He's still got this playfulness. He's still got this um, uh, trickster's charm and unpredictability. But in his deepest soul, if he was playing the same tunes, you know, that's the definition of madness, isn't it? The definition of madness is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Um, and I think he's like in season one, he's like, okay, I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> so I have to, but it's it's new for him and it's new for other people also. Cause when he's being when he's trying to do the right thing, people are like, ah, I don't trust you. You're the god of mischief. You're just you're just trying to make a play. And he's like, oh, I'm really not this time. So it's almost like but again, that's what the sh I think that's what we all set up as the show was about. And I include Michael Waldron and Kate Heron in this is, is it's, a, it's about identity and um, confrontation um, and that we contain multitudes and can a leopard change its spots and what makes a Loki a Loki. Loki and Sylvie talk about that in the first season all the time. But if Loki was the same old Loki he always was, then where does that, what does that get him? Where does that get him? I, but I do think he's still, I hope that the, the mischief is still there in, 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 a, in, as you say, in that scene with, um, with X5 or Brad. Um, uh, I think he, I think it's, he enjoys kind of, it's, those are still chords he can play. He hasn't forgotten, you know.
All right, that was Tom Hiddleston. And if you want to hear the rest of the Lucky Sporter Special, it is behind our Sporter Special paywall and you can indeed subscribe to that. Empire.supportingcast.fm if you wish to subscribe. Come on in, the water's lovely and there's loads of other great stuff in there as well. Uh, anyway, that is it for this week's Empire podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun where we'll be joined by... Well, the big names just keep coming. Really? They do indeed. Oof. We'll be joined by the stars of Ridley Scott's Napoleon, Joaquin Phoenix, and Vanessa Kirby. That's right, the Joker and Sue Storm oh together boy. at last. <laughs> uh, we'll also be joined by another Oscar winner, John Batiste, uh, who is the subject of an incredible documentary called American Symphony, and his director, Matthew Heineman, and there may be some other people as well, because cool. uh, actors are throwing themselves at us now in an attempt to get on this podcast. Maybe less so once they hear James's Hunger Games review, but <laughs> what can you do? Anyway, until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from my three colleagues of such lethal cunning, Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. James Dyer. Bye. And John Nugent. Goodbye. Off to see some films, no doubt, John. <laughs> I see films all the time. I probably couldn't see these films because I was too busy seeing other, other films. films. <laughs> <laughs> In fairness... You don't like films that don't have like a Powell or a Pressburger in them. So, you know, so that's probably, that's probably it. I mean, I do like Powell and Pressburger, that's true. Yeah. But I like other films. Like a, a, like a Radiohead. You like, you like a Radiohead and a Powell and a Pressburger. That, you, you basically summed up my personality. That yeah. does sound good. Yeah. That does sound yeah. good. Yeah. Um, anyway. Uh, and it's goodbye from me as well. I'm off to make this. John's dream film, a reality. I could do that now. Powell, Pressburger, and Radiohead. Tom York together at last. <laughs> the Radiohead be... shoes. <gasps> oh, a matter of life and the Radiohead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're we're going to workshop it. We'll, quite we'll workshop it. We'll workshop it. Uh, we'll deal you it, hey. and we'll come right back. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye bye. Oh.